Lords, ladies, and lowlifes, I'd like to welcome you to the second season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. When my brewery was facing extinction for the third of five times, I poured my heart into a book by the same name and released it on Amazon and Kobo in August of 2021. That was my sordid tale about the mistakes I made and the punches I took over a 10-year career in craft beer. It was tough to write, but it was a story that needed to be shared and it contained lessons I wanted to make sure others could learn from. I truly hope you grab a copy and reach out and let me know your thoughts. In this podcast, I wanted to share the stories of struggle, strife, and sacrifice that other owners and operators have experienced. Some of the content is emotional, and some of it is inspirational. And I'm confident that if you listen closely, you'll find all of it to be educational. I want to take the time to honestly thank you for being here, and thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing, and liking the podcast. With your help and the help of our guests, I truly hope that we can teach the world how not to start a damn brewery. Our guest today is Dean Brundage of the New Republic Brewing Company. And like any great drama, this one is a story of love, hope, betrayal, and complete and total annihilation. So he and his business partner started their brewery together with stars in their eyes back in 2010. Only a few years later, the disagreements turned into Dean being forced out of the company that he helped found, create, and build. New Republic has always had a cult following here in Texas, and to this day, they have a legion of loyal fans. These guys produced a selection of straightforward beer styles with recognizable packaging that should have had a bright future. I'm fond of saying that I don't interview assholes that make shitty beer and ugly packaging, and New Republic is a perfect fit for this podcast for that reason. Well, at least the partner I got to interview was. So we recorded this episode at the 101 in Bryan College Station, and owner Jeremy joined us in for drinking, commenting, and even a little bit of lamenting the direction this industry we all love is headed. I do want to apologize a little bit for some of the audio. There were some uh, fans blowing and some cars passing by. I spent a lot of time editing it, and I've cleaned it up substantially. But there are some noises inherent with on-site interviews. And I think loosening Dean's lips with a steady flow of beer and the addition of Jeremy's insights was worth the little bumps in the audio. At least I hope you agree. Dean also referenced how to take a deeper dive into the emotions and truth of exactly how he got ousted from the brewery he helped imagine into existence. And his wife, Adrian, had some things to say that I absolutely love. So uh, if you look in the show notes, I have linked that that blog, and I really recommend you read it uh, either before or after. I think it offers a lot of great insight into what Dean is talking about and some you know, the other half of what it was like being a wife of the husband going through all that. So sit back, relax, kick off your feet, and enjoy the episode with Dean from New Republic Brewing. I'm very proud of what we put together, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Dean, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing, and uh, thanks for, most of all for giving a swollen, pregnant fuck about all of our guests that we're about to help be better in their careers today. I want to give Jeremy a chance to explain uh, where he's letting us hang out and, and why it's such a badass place for us to record. We are in Bryan College Station, Texas, right across the street from historic downtown Bryan at the 101. It's a new craft beer bar that opened up in January of 2021. Uh, basically, it's a outdoor open-air concept, an old full-service gas station. We pulled out all the car lifts, we concreted the floor, built a bar, and now we got a little open-air live live music venue with a shit ton of craft beer. It's a cool spot. I really like it. It reminds me there was a pizza place in Marfa years ago that I went to, and it was sick in an old service station. And I was like, why don't more people do that? It's kind of badass. I don't think I've seen anybody do it since. It's pretty expensive to renovate an old service station. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, like the petrol station in Houston. Not there anymore, but... Oh, really? Yeah. yeah wow. It closed. Mama. A few years ago, I think. Now I am so out of the loop. But... 
back to just being a computer guy again? No, I'm a restauranter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about New Republic Brewing primarily and a bunch of other random shit that we plan to get to, I'm sure. But we're going to have some fun stuff, yeah. You had co-founded New Republic Brewing here in A&M uh, right about the same time that I had founded mine. Uh, we can argue over who was stupider between the two of us, but... Uh, Today we're going to let you have the floor, so we'll, we'll, we'll err on the side of it being you, I guess. But I, we learned in episode two, having a partner can be a big pain in the ass, and obviously you went through that. But my goal here is to let you tell that story. Let's just start with how you found it, kind of in the beginning. Because So I moved here uh, from California in 08. Like California, land of craft beer, good beer culture, um, just like general, like a different culture. And to a college town where there was no brewery and sort of a crappy selection of, of craft beer. We had like three macro micros. Um, and so I was a home brewer. So um, I did the dumb thing and said, hey, let's start a brewery. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's how we got here. So how did you meet John? You had a partner early on? Yeah, um, I had a, I started the local homebrew club because there was also no homebrew club here. And I was, I had a good time with my club back in San Francisco, uh, Silicon Valley Sudsers, what's up? So I had a blog, I had the Homebrew Club, and like some random news, slow news day picked me up and did me an, did an interview, which got me a beer dinner at a local fine dining shop. And uh, John was in attendance, so I was talking about beer, beer pairing and all that. And we just had talking, I told him about the Homebrew Club and sort of like, um, that's how I met him. Around 2009, I was like, I decided I was gonna start looking into doing a brewery and so I was shopping around for partners and rejected a couple of them because they were insufferable, but. <laughs> Insufferable, yeah, you know. <laughs> John, like John, had the passion and and uh, and and the willingness to take the plunge. So, yeah. okay. So, why why New Republic? Let's answer that one. Uh, again, that's the homebrew club's fault. Kind of like we were putting it out there at a meeting, like, "Hey, we're going to start a brewery. We need a name." And so we just like had a brainstorming session, and somebody suggested Old Republic, which is kind of cool, but we're like the new guard, New Republic. Basically, it's kind of Texan, kind of like Nouveau. Well, it worked. I think the community definitely rallied behind the name. They yeah. liked it for sure. What was the ownership structure? Was it just everybody 50-50? We did. Um, so we were a member-managed, sorry, manager-managed LLC, and we had members. So we had like a membership just uh, membership shares. So like me and John, we had some for our net investors, and then John and I split the rest 50-50. Yeah, which a lot of that, if you listen to your podcast uh, from the beginning, is is on there. Yeah, now that the website's down, you can't get yeah. them off the right. Republic website. Right. Uh, that, it was entertaining to listen to. It was it was sort of like the the how to version of my show. Yeah, um, and it would have been super cool if they end up with fifteen or twenty episodes and kind of watch the trajectory of the brewery all the way through. But we're gonna do our best to try to verbally remember all of that shit. So one of the, one of my favorite things that I, I heard from there was uh, you know, what the fuck am I saying? We're all playing for you. You can tell right. me. <laughs> and uh, we'll be doing nights and weekends until we get enough uh, making beer making to put my job. Nights and weekends, yeah. It's full time. Yeah. Put the rabbits. I have to say, that was my favorite thing that you said, <laughs> is that you were going to get into the brewing industry to quote unquote quit the rat race. <laughs> and uh, my experience in my brewery was... Uh, Polarly the opposite. It was all nights, all weekends. It, it was more rat race than I had ever had in any huh. other job that I had had before. So you're not wrong about that, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. <laughs> it was so much more fulfilling than than coding and being a system administrator. So yeah, I can imagine that. I guess you're right. Yeah. You know, if uh, if your other choice was coding, right. I'll take brewing all day long. Okay. So 
I know in the in the podcast you had talked a lot about you know investors coming in. Did you, did you have a lot of investors, and how did you do that? It was mostly friends and family and homebrew guys. And- it was mostly friends and family. Um, yeah, we had maybe a dozen of them. So too many. We had too many. Start off raising twenty grand to start a little brewery. Quickly realized it should have been, we should have doubled that, and then probably added ten thousand more. So, but it was such a small amount that friends and family were able to just give us some money, and not care about it. But yeah, we made it work. Yeah, and, and you guys had an interesting concept, and I think some of the guys that start small again, and we did the same thing. We started with a two barrel system with the intention of growing. Right. But I never called mine the nano phase. It was just sort of when I'm starting, I'm starting, and then eventually I hope to grow. Yeah. But you guys had a little bit more of a structured concept of we're going to start with the quote unquote nano phase, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the interview you had said that you were going to go to nine barrels. Oh no! We just had an idea of like maybe we need to produce so much barrelage in a in a nine barrel. Like is I don't know. I had no idea. We were young and stupid at the time. Ah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, the the body of knowledge of things I didn't know yeah. could and did fill oh, a book. Really, so don't at sure. all think I'm judging. <laughs> yeah. So what? So in the beginning, you guys did the two barrel system. Is that what you started with? We started off with the one barrel system. One brewing double bratching in. It was a mess. Uh, we had a like a forty gallon kettle and a thirty gallon. I don't know. Maybe we had, we had two kettles. Take and, a double batch. Yeah, so we could double batch sort of in parallel, and a big old mash tun cooler. So I guess we were doing two barrels. We had we had two barrel plastic tanks that we would go into. Yeah. Okay. And I so, remember those tanks. They were yeah. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen commercial breweries use big ones that are the same too. Oh yeah. So it, it, yeah. it definitely has happened. Um, in some of the more com- bigger facilities, like let's we won't call anybody out on no. that one <laughs> until I get them on the show, and then right. I will. But I'd be curious to get, uh, you know, Johnny Max. No, uh, he had a little brewery out in Beaumont that folded pretty quick. Anyway, he'd be a he'd be a trip to get on. Well, and who is the guy that had um, big Texas beer? Oh that yeah, guy? that guy too. Yeah, yeah. I've I've looked <laughs> into that one. The story of that one is, in my opinion, just fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, just like us, it's a beautiful disaster. But he was he, he worked so hard and was so ingenious in some of his things. No, that was that was them, Johnny Max. Okay, yeah. big Texas beer. Yeah, uh, he built his own bottling line. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, are you? There's a, the YouTube video may still be up there. The, the guy was obviously knew his shit. I mean, he was able to put it together. But I mean, I just, we copied his bottle label or design. We copied a bunch of shit from him. Yeah, yeah. 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 He also had that on there too. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Interesting guy for sure. Yeah, I'll try to find him. So this is one of those questions I always have for guys that had partners in the beginning that were both brewers, both homebrewers, both very specific in the styles they wanted to make. How did you guys decide who was the quote-unquote brewmaster, or more importantly, like what you were going to lead with from a production standpoint and that kind of thing? I think it was mostly just like attrition, like who <laughs> who blinked first, you know? Maybe I bullied my way into it. I don't know. Like that never came up, but like he was satisfied to... He was wanted to call himself the CEO, which <laughs> was kind of stupid to be like a two-person operation but so like I, yeah you go do the C, you do the, the ex- executive stuff and i'll do that yeah you fuck with your spreadsheets yeah, all day long right. yeah which you know i've, I've got an appreciation for spreadsheets i love them too i'd rather be brewing so in the beginning in our in our nano phase the, which was supposed to be six months but turned into 18 like we both kind of did everything together but once we had the the new system in place it was like we, we split up our duties for sure yeah well, so we may skip around a little bit to some of the topics that I like to discuss. But so in my books, uh, mistake two was start small and build, which yeah. is what I did. Yeah, uh, clearly so, what you guys did. 
So it was a mistake for me and it limited me and our growth and definitely set me off in the beginning, definitely undercapitalized, but also just sort of undermarketed and, and the equipment wasn't built in such a way that I could make high quality beer. Right. So I consider that to be a big mistake that I made. I'm curious to how you would look back on the growth phase for you. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that since you invited me on this podcast and I've been listening to your podcast and like in the beginning I didn't think it was a mistake. So we wanted to see if if we were going to ruin a hobby with going pro. Um, right. And it was cheap, relatively cheap. So like those were all pluses to me. Upon examination, it did it did hamper us. Like the quality of the beer was not good, which snowballed into like having a bad reputation around town eventually yeah. when we did go big. So it was it was a tough market. It, it, this should have been our local market. This should have been like the place where we sold the most beer. But because we started off with incomplete fermentations or bad carbonation or all that stuff, like we got a we got a bad reputation. This is before the culture like of breweries. We still don't have it, but everybody was expecting like well-made craft beer or well-made beer. So like some yokel idiot homebrewer who doesn't know what they're doing, trying to sell shit beer to a, a, a beer bar, like they're going to know, they're going to talk, and people are going to listen. So like, yeah, that quality having initial first quality that was that was that eventually hampered us and like yeah made it hard for us to stay in this market. I definitely dealt with that, and one of the things I remember sitting down and I, I can't remember the year now. I was either seventeen or eighteen. And I had come up with a new name that would sort of still be able to use the same NBB thing. And so I was like, we, we've got to change the name. Because yeah. we had started off with such a reputation that it didn't matter that what we were making now was heads and tails better than what we were making then. That's still what the average consumer thought about us. Yeah. And I don't get Jody at Witchcraft when I interviewed him, interviewed him. He even admitted, he's like, if you're a brewery now and you make a product somebody doesn't like, there's 97 other products just like it right behind you right. that they have no reason to ever try it again. Right. You told them it's better two years later, uh, which I think is even more so now than in 2018 when I made that decision. Very much, yeah. And the part of me wishes I had changed the name. I don't know if that would have worked, but I do know that keeping the name I don't think worked. So. Yeah. 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 Like, it's hard to rehab a reputation, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in a crowded marketplace. One of the other mistakes that I had made in the book was focusing on quality over branding. And that it was one of those things that, for me, it was, it was recipe design. And I think, yeah, coming out of the marketplace at the time when we did, and similar time that you did, what we got excited about were traditional styles that were made really well, more often than not, imported from uh, Belgium or Germany or wherever. And all of those guys had pretty shitty labeling. <laughs> yeah. And to this day, still do, right? Right. You can make that argument. But so that was, I guess, the paradigm that I came about it with. Fast forward to now, and you see a marketplace where you don't even get the chance to taste the beer. You're drinking it with your eyes on the like label art or the tap handle first. How did that work for you guys? I know your labeling was fairly simple as well. Yeah. And How'd you decide on it and all that kind of thing? So two things came together for that. I think we did that pretty well. Um, one, at the time I was buying beer, Real Ale was, was in this market and their labeling was garbage. There was no, co- there was no coherency between like yeah. between two Real Ale bottles. You didn't know one was the real, what you didn't know they were real ales. They used to have a mixed 12 pack yeah. and it was like four different, three different ones, four of them or something like that. Yeah. And even when you pulled them out of there, they didn't look the same yeah. after you did it. Yeah. Um, so I recognized that we needed to have a cohesive brand. And then um, I was I was renting um, some co-working space because I was rem- I was a remote, remote worker in 2008 when it was still cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was renting some space with a bunch of other guys and one of them was a branding team. And we became friends, and the idiot said, "Hey, I want to brand your brewery for cheap." So, and they were good. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, so I had a good 
good team, always creative. What's up, y'all? Um, and uh, yeah, they did a, they did a pretty good job. So we worked with them to like give them a concept of where we were trying to go, and then they came back with something good. So yeah, and then we worked with them over the over the years, kept them on. Did they come up with those names too? No, that was us. Yeah, I know that's one of the questions when we talk about that. We decided. Um, we needed a theme for our naming system because I guess, I don't know, we're not that creative. So we decided <laughs> <laughs> we decided that we were going to um, sort of carry the, the craft line, like to carry the craft idea into our names and say we were going to pick tools or like products of, of craft things. It's so like a bellows is a, well, that was the original names. Um, Damn it, Jim. Damn it. That, that's, <laughs> that's another story we can get into for sure. Is that a screwdriver? What the fuck uh, is that? Like, that <laughs> Damn it, Jim is a fun story. Yeah. Tell that one. We will. Um, so we, we decided like we're going to pick tools or, or products of, of Craftsman to name our beers after. And then turn, Bellows was our first. Bellows and Skylight. Um, so we kind of bent things around like Skylight's an architect's product. Centrifugal roof fan. Centrifugal roof fan. Oh, man. <laughs> There's a throwback. That, that was one of my favorite ones you'll have <laughs> So that's when, uh, yeah, this is one of those quality things when we uh, we screwed up and pitched. So Bellows was our kind of like amber, we call it an amber ale. I realize now I should have called it an amber IPA and just sold the shit out of it. Um, it was a little hoppy. Yeah, it was, it, was a, yeah. it was a 50 IBU, like hoppy amber. So like we should just call it an amber IPA. Anyway, um, so we got, and Skylight was our Dunkelweiss, a real traditional, beautiful Dunkelweiss. And I accidentally pitched the wheat yeast into the, into the amber beer. And, uh, you know, it turned out okay. So we just kind of, like, put them both together. Bellows is a fan. <laughs> Skylight, yeah, so it's Centrifugal Ruth fan is those things. That, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> like, you know, you got to roll with whatever. So what the fuck is a Warimoto or whatever that one is? So a Warimoto is a traditional Japanese firework. It's like the chrysanthemum display. Mm. And so we wanted, I don't know exactly what, that was one of John's um, ideas. It's, I like the name, and that was sort of an explosion of flavor in your mouth, so... Yeah, what the hell? But damn it, Jim came about because apparently there's a shitty bottom shelf bourbon named Bellows. Yeah, and at the time I think plastic glove. Yeah, yeah. And at the time I think like Constellation was like trying to shore up their their brand so they could sell off a bunch of shit. So we got a cease and desist from them. Like, don't can't sell a beer named Bellows. And so they were like, all right, whatever. And uh, we decided to call it Damn It, Jim. I'm a beer, not a bourbon. And you actually. I got somebody from Star Trek to confirm it correctly. Yeah, uh, George Decay actually picked it up and like put it on the Twitter feed. Like it came to him randomly, and then like then we were getting calls from all over the fucking country. <laughs> like, can you distribute? Can I buy this beer? No. But that turned out to be a really good like the name just sold it for people, and um, that turned out to be our like 55 percent of our sales for that beer. Really, that was our flagship. Yeah, which is an amber. Yeah. Which is not normal for no, most breweries. Exactly. So, yeah. Like I said, it was hoppy and it was malty and like it was just. It's a good beer, in my opinion. But if we called it an amber IPA, that would probably would have been better. Yeah, know. if you can put IPA anywhere <laughs> yeah, exactly. on it, yeah. that helps quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. Uh, the consumer's not smart enough to know the difference, right? I don't know. So most of them. <laughs> most, most are not. Yeah. <laughs> most, most come into this bar and they're like, how many IPAs do you have on the table? One. Yeah. Uh, what? Only one IPA choice. <laughs> you got 30 in cans. Yeah. If you on. like hops, we can find you something. Yeah. Like, yeah. You should just get some uh, hop resin and just dip it in the glass. <laughs> Whatever you want. We're doing hop resin bombs. There today. you go, like CBD shots. But <laughs> yeah. So this is one of those things, there's many things that I deal with trying to find the best way to handle it. And from in my opinion, I was listening to your podcast about how you guys were picking these names and why you were going to choose them the way that you completely respectfully, you guys are a bunch of couple fucking nerds. Right. Which I think is fantastic. Absolutely. I love it. Oh, yeah. But 
so you're coming up with names that like no one's going to understand, right? And it, what your three guys are. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they, they were catchy enough. I think that they worked. No one knew what the hell they were. They right. were just random names, but also more trademarkable in some sense that way. But I've talked to other people that have had the same thing. Like there's, if you're into a thing, you try to go deep and you want everyone to understand that in your brewery. And I would argue that now, if you're trying to be more successful, you may want to do less of that and come stupid it down a little bit. Unfortunately, that's what you're seeing win in the marketplace is just simple names that just say what it is and it, they aren't too complex. Do you think that's because people are trusting the, the brewery over the, the style or what? Like, you're getting a lot of that. There's definitely, particularly in Texas, there's a lot of confirmation bias that sure. um, I should like that beer. So my friend Instagrammed it, so I'm going to like it. And you can even see when you read between the lines on some Facebook stuff and some untapped check-ins that <laughs> people hate it, but they want to like it. And yeah. so this is a weird way of saying I'm glad they tried it or, you know, valiant effort on the part of my brewery, you know, that kind of thing. So like brand loyalty is more driving like yeah. purchasing decisions. And then like, yeah, you just want to know what it is rather than having to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of makes sense. Which I think in the time when you guys open, like, you know, obviously Jester King, same timeline. Right. There was the more esoteric, the better. And it's just gotten less and less of that every year, in my opinion. Makes sense. Um, you know, it, I, I think we've been a few episodes since I've mentioned them, so I'll, I'll bring up Martin House again. Mar- Martin House's names, by and large, are that simple. They'll, sure. they'll have a name, but it will say underneath of it, Raspberry Sour, which is almost like, here's this cool thing we made up, yeah. but here's what the dipshit needs to know it is. Yeah. And so disappointing to me as an artist to see that, but at the same time, commercially, I know exactly why they're doing it, and they have to. That's, but that's, that's a good compromise between like having the customer have to guess about... If they're going to buy your product, if they're going to buy your thing, your beer, then they want to know what it is, maybe. Like, yeah. And the, um, sort of blind trust. Because, you know, you can buy, like, I'll basically buy any milkshake IPA that uh, Nola puts out just once because I like that stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, every once in a while I get a thing that's like, nah, I don't like this. You're always going to have a miss. When, when you're trying to compete in, like, grocery store shows and things like that, just having the style of beer on your art makes sense because there's just so many things on yeah. When you walk into an HEV, their singles wall is like 30, 40 feet long, right? Like yeah. If you're at a bar, it's, it doesn't really matter as much because, in theory, the bartender should know what they're selling. But at a grocery store, the consumer has nobody to ask. Right. Yeah. And I think that I would consider myself to be the anti expert, not the expert. So take that <laughs> for what it's worth. But um, I think, too, once we had that migration from large format bottles to small format cans, the, one, there's less space for information if you try to have you know a book of the story of how you created the beer and why it's a tie to the land or whatever. You don't have room on the can. But then mm. additionally, I think the consumer that we were trying to get by moving to cans does not want to spend the time shopping, holding, twisting, Googling. Well, like Four Corners does a really good job with it. I think they're out of Austin. And they have just a little graphic that says, this is how happy it is, this is blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the consumer is just going to trust brewery that they did the right thing is yeah. it right maybe maybe not but if it's on there at least it's something for somebody to make a quick decision yeah. well that would actually be a um what would you say like a, a confirmation of exactly what we just said yeah. so yeah, basically they are owned by one of the top five brewing uh, businesses in the world yeah. constellation owns right. so they're going to have exactly the commercial right that you yeah. would think right so at least uh, it's somebody to advise them on that, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah they should know better i guess would be a better way to say it. they didn't so let's talk about the tap room. Yeah. When you, when you first built, you did have a tasting room. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, did, did you move locations also? Yeah, we did. Okay. Not very far from uh, from one warehouse to the next warehouse. Um, 
So we start off in a 1,200 square foot warehouse, maybe about this size that we're in the building we're in right now. And behind it was like this field. It was a septic field, but it was, you know, it was, it was open space. We were open like twice a month and that paid the rent. So eventually we opened up every weekend. And then when we moved, we moved to a 25, we double our space and then we double our space again. Uh, so I think eventually we ended up with 5,000 square feet. It was all warehouse, warehouse tap room. And then, and then again, we had a backyard. Um, and that was the cool thing about that spot is we had a backyard with, we could put picnic tables out and then we built a giant fucking stage out there. So one of the reasons I started the brewery was because I like, I love live music. I love listening to live music. And you know, if I can drink a beer and sit with friends and listen to some live music, then even better. Give me that. Let me choose who I'm listening to, that sort of thing, you know? Well, and legitimately speaking, at the time, you were the only open-air place in Bryan College Station where you could get a beer. Yeah. Like, really? The only one. Uh, yeah, I guess like a fox and hound had some seats they, outside. They, but, had, <laughs> they had a patio, but yeah. it wasn't like an open-air, nice, like, green space. Yeah. So, I, I saw some Instagram pictures, and I will admit, um, I don't think I went to the new facility when, after you guys had opened. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you have for indoor seating versus outdoor seating? You had a lot of outdoor seating. I saw that. Yeah. Um, it was just some, some like five, four or five tables, four or five picnic tables inside the, on the production floor okay. next to the fermenter. So again, the big focus of the show is to look for advice. And I have said many times that air conditioned indoor seating is the variable to our, what would have been success. Yeah. So it contributed dynamically to our failure, even more so to the fact that I took production space back in 2019 and put picket tables essentially yeah. in that area. Unfortunately, during 2020, when everything moved to uh, production, I had to switch it back again, yeah. which now uh, we're paying for because now we don't have the air conditioned indoor seats. But I don't know if you know the exact number, but I'm curious if you could maybe speak to how you think that might have affected you if you could have tripled your indoor space versus having more outdoor. Yeah, big time. Um, having indoor space, like I don't think you can nowadays start a brewery and not have a nice tapper. You can't. You can't be a warehouse brewery anymore. Um, people are going to expect to come sit down, at least in a bar style, um, and maybe even have food. I don't know. But speaking of being nerdy, we had a one of our <laughs> one of our bartenders, a PhD student in astrophysics, um, working on big data. It's like we gave him our sales data. And he correlated a bunch of shit, like um, temperature, humidity, whether we had food, whether we had music, like season, all that shit. And the thing that that influenced whether somebody would come out to the taproom, our sales, was relative humidity, mm. followed closely by food. Yeah. So it can be hot if it's, you know, if it's not. Uh, yeah. So having indoor air conditioned space, people want to go out, even if you're out in the country where there's a breeze still. Well, and the days that are nice are so limited. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But yeah. one more question about your uh, facility itself. And I want to take a quick break and talk more about the brewing stuff. But in, I know in the original facility would be small one barrel system. You guys didn't have a bright tank. Right. So I assume you put that in when you expanded. Yes. Because I remember. So I don't know if you remember, but the very yeah. last episode of your podcast was John explaining why all the kegs that had gone to the market were shit, and then he was re- replacing them. <laughs> okay. And cool. not, the not having the bright tank was a, one of his big reasons why that had happened. Yeah. But so in the new facility, you built it. You got a chance to like look through all your equipment. I know you you know, put floor drains in. You did everything. There had to been something you were missing. What what was missing in the big facility that you wish it had? You know, you I can't just save money. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's probably what I wrote down when I, uh, when I was looking through the notes. I don't, you know, I don't think 
I can't. I, did, I tried to think of something to come up with this uh, to answer this question, but we bought brand new fermenters, so like we had nice, clean, beautiful tanks. Um, our equipment, like the rest of the equipment, was used. Sure, we could have had a um, a grain silo or a grain like some place to an auger and a like a place to to hold our mills grain before we mash it. So like having having something like that would have been. We eventually got it, and it was great. It was so good. But <laughs> all right, so. Speaking of starting small and doing shit janky and all that stuff, we had this guy, a friend, my friend Ryan, who was like, he would come in. Um, I don't know how he was just wandering to the brewery one day and like we got us talking. He was, <laughs> they, they do yeah, that, don't they? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and we're real good friends now. So, but he would like wander in and like we would chat while I was brewing, and he would be looking at something. He would ask a few questions, and like two weeks later, he would come back with this prototype thing really? to solve a problem. Yeah, he tried like three times to build us a grist hydrator, and you know that was okay. But we also like. He built us this, this like thing out of pallets where we could mill our grain into and then forklift it over the mash tun and like a little butterfly valve. And even before that, since we didn't, you mentioned we didn't have a bright tank, dude like went to a junkyard, got a windshield wiper motor, two pallets. It's like one pallet of the base, one pallet would, would tip back and forth so we could load two kegs on it, hook them up to CO2. And, and it would agitate them? Flip on the window wiper motor. Huh. And that would, would stick that in our cold box. And like instead of like sitting there for 20 minutes shaking a keg, we could just put it on there for, and turn it on. So That is an interesting way. So John actually said in that podcast that that was his plan. He didn't have a bright tank, so he was going to take four kegs, mm-hmm. pull out of the fermenter into the four kegs, carbonate, and essentially bright in there. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, that's not going to fucking work. You can't just put pressure. It's not like a homebrew thing. But if you agitate it, it might actually work pretty good. It did work pretty so. well, yeah. Like, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time sitting in our little cold box with AC, like, just shaking kegs on my lap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and then when Ryan came with that, uh, I don't, we didn't have a name for it, but this keg shaker, like, that was a, that was great. <laughs> we just put our kegs on there and set it good. So, not to um, point out the obvious, but you. Every single one of your beers was named after a tool, and you built a tool, and you couldn't think of a fucking name I for know, it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we we're not that creative. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break. I'm going to go out back and dig a hole, and uh, we're going to come back and talk about some of your brewing. Right on. Remember when you had to buy film for your camera, take pictures you couldn't see or edit, and then pay someone to take two weeks to develop them into pictures? Well, there wasn't a better way then but there is a better way now. Are you literally still measuring final gravity with a hydrometer like some furry caveman? Dude, you need to get AccuBrew. You'll find real-time feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. And the thing will alert you anywhere in the world when any of them are out of your spec. I'm tired of telling you to make better beer, so go install AccuBrew and make me shut up. Seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and even I will thank you. All right, well, thanks for sticking with us. Welcome back. You gave me the impression that once the new brewery came in, you guys changed your brewing operations structure somewhat. Yeah. So, well, how did you do that? How did, how did that look? It was kind of an organic process, uh, for sure. Being in a college town, we're lucky that we had no shortage of volunteer labor. And this was back at a time when, like, that was still industry standard. You could get volunteers and not pay them, pay them in beer. And it was like 14 or 15 that we all kind of got in trouble. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. And by that time, we were paying all of our staff, so it was good. That's one of the things I'm proud of as as far as like the brewery. Like We would have so many people come in, get a little training, and then go on to better things. Our first intern, Lucky, he went on to like run Live Oak Cellar. And next intern, Colony, went over to run... Um, he's over at St. Arnold still, running their cellar. I got people in... Where did Emily go? She went to... like. 
Victory or something. So a lot of people came through here. Cameron, they have a Cameron. Cameron, yeah, Cameron. He went. Uh, he went to brewery school after us. He, I missed the fuck out of Cameron, man. He was. He provided a really like solid culture, and then he sort of like he created the craft beer scene at, at Rev. Like he would just be always fun because we were we'd spend like eight hours on the goddamn canning line together. So like he's just fun to hang out with. And now he's a he's up at Coupe Works. So like a lot of our people came through here, got some learned how to do it wrong, and then. <laughs> and did it right. Um, so we luckily we like I had to become good at like, training people to do the way that I wanted brew. I wanted to be a brew, and as we sort of we grew organically ish, took us a while to figure out our system and get shit together. But eventually, I'll be the head brewer. I had a cellar guy and a la- cellar slash lab guy who's a food science major at uh, AM. Uh, he did a little interning and then like got a passion for it, and it was kind of right up his alley. So uh, he was also our analytical guy, built a, a lab out of nothing. Well, okay, before him was Logan, who went over to No Label, um, and now has moved out of state, I think. I missed the hell out of Logan, too. I missed all of those guys. Um, and then Josh, our delivery guy, driver, went over to being a shift brewer. So we had people who would come on, and we would beat the shit out of them, because, you know, like, you're not... <laughs> I remember, like, one intern that came up, and we did, we had some copper wire that we needed strips, like, so we could get some cash, so like, hey, <laughs> you know what you're doing today? You're stripping wire. I think the next week he went out and got a job at B-52. Yeah, you're funding operations <laughs> yeah, right. today, buddy. <laughs> we, would, we would give them shit jobs because we always had shit jobs to do. And eventually the ones that lasted would, would be good. They would, they would know what they were doing. They would be like part of the culture. So, yeah. so who did the kind of recipe development? It was mostly me. Yeah, I let, like one of our most successful, our table beer came out of uh, Brian. And we didn't, by the time we had a full staff, we were sort of like in the mode of, these are the core beers we're going to make. We've got five or six of them. We're not going to... Um, that was before like, we figured out that we should make different kinds of beers for the tap room and that sort of thing. Oh, right. Uh, and we were focused on distribution and production, which was stupid. We can get into that. So we, we kind of had like this idea. We, we got four cores or three cores and three seasonals, and that's what we're doing. That's what we were kind of geared towards, being having a 20-barrel system and a 60-barrel tank that we need. <laughs> that's a lot of beer. That's a lot of beer, yeah. I did most of the recipe design. But like John, John came up with the sweet potato porter and the dunkel vice. Uh, I miss, I miss a porter. Our, not the, the sweet potato porter was fine, but just like a base porter that was fucking delicious. Nobody makes a good porter. How many beers did you guys make that had lactose in them? Zero. Oh, that's why you're not in business anymore. That's why we're not in business anymore. Ah. I think we, we started before the, the big old lactose, before like B-52 kind of pioneered that here in Texas, I think. And so we started a little bit before them. And I just never like, no, this wasn't for me. We did we. We made mistake number two. What brew? What's what you like? Not what's profitable. But, yeah, yeah, and well, in mean, traditional styles too, which yeah. is harder to sell. And uh, there's uh, a yeah. million reasons. But yeah, although we did sell a good deal of sweet potato pork, and that was one of your earliest recipes, right? It was. I think it was our third. How did you decide on your pricing? As far as like with the once you had, you can even do kegs and package yeah. separately. But um, we uh, we did it the stupid way and just looked at what the market was charging and like tried to shoehorn our prices into that. It's like we saw, hey, something size charging whatever for, for a six pack let's work backwards see what see what we can get to that to, to retail so that's okay. that was probably that was a naive way to do it for sure well usually when you do that you wind up going back with your spreadsheet later comparing it to your cogs and winding up either A underwater yeah. <laughs> or at least tight or B like holy shit that beer is amazingly profitable which is sort of what happened to me with pickle fucker so mm-hmm. to an extent I kind of said well it's sour beer all those are selling at this price when I went back and looked at my actual costs on the beer like, well, this is what we need to lead with this is the most profitable thing we make yeah do you know but like, happen to remember what the most profitable beer you made was <laughs> it was probably our um the belgian triple because it was a super simple recipe it was 
pills are malt, table sugar, and a hop. <laughs> and <laughs> uh-huh. yeast. Yeah. And then we could sell it because, you know, it was a high alcohol, so we could sell it for a good good price. And there there weren't that many Belgians on the market, especially not a, tr- a good triple. I, I went back and last night and I was looking at my, my financial projections and like I did do a cost breakdown like around 2015, 2016, I think, when we were sort of like in our in our main production. And uh, yeah, I don't know, we were making like $400, $400 a barrel is what like our, our moderate price was. And I don't remember what our, I didn't have labor in my, <laughs> in my spreadsheet. Like that was probably not a good thing. Not a good model. Yeah, I, I would say that most of us did. Yeah, yeah, because we were doing it for free, right? We were right. there. So. We weren't getting paid, and that's the only reason we were even profitable on paper, basically. But. So did you have to change your pricing a lot, or did you pretty much just keep it at that point and go? We kept it at a point. Since we never had to change distributors or, like, any of that, we basically kept it. We sort of, like, increased every once in a while when, when it seemed like everybody else was increasing prices. So mostly we just followed what the market was doing. I would argue that if, if I was trying to open a brewery today with the amount that I know now that there's exactly 0% chance that I would, and a big part of that is that the market has changed, which I guess you can make the argument is why I also sold my brewery three weeks ago. Yeah, congrats. (laughs) So the market has changed dramatically that I don't understand the current consumer. Uh, You don't trust the skinny chef. Like, I don't don't appreciate the beers that people appreciate, so why would I? It doesn't make sense for me to be the guy making it. Somebody else should, and they should run with it. Do you feel like you had that same experience? So if you were going to open today... Would you do the same thing? And I know you're not going to, so don't uh, don't think I'm trying to say you are. But would you do the same thing you had done then? Would you still make traditional styles? Would you still try to? I think about this all the time. Like I think about getting back <laughs> to the green show. Like <laughs> I might not be the right person to talk to on this podcast because I loved everything about it. Um, no, I definitely am not. So if I if I can make any point clear, there are no goals mm-hmm. in the podcast. Or what I'm trying to message, I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to get through. If you want to tell people that, you go right ahead. Yeah. I will just disagree with you on the I'm next like, podcast. Yeah, start small. <laughs> Don't worry about quality because people will just drink whatever shit. No. Would I do it all over the same? I would do it differently. I would definitely have a restaurant. And that's one of the reasons why once I once I got bought out, I went into the restaurant business because I had no experience in restaurants. And when we started off, we didn't want to fucking run a restaurant because that was a whole different hassle that neither of us had experience with. Don't have food at all. People are going to leave. If you look at my book, I actually put one of our actual Saturday sales on there, the graph of the day, and it shows like you know about a hundred bucks an hour, and then between five and seven zero, everyone left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they all go eat. That was our main pain point too, because we were we were quote out in the country, but it was really you know everything is fucking ten minutes away from everything else in this town. But this town is still small. Yeah, people will not drive <laughs> I know, fucking it's, it's so ten weird. miles. But, they just won't. But people would come in. They would have a beer. If there was no food, they would leave. And when there were food. People would stay. So, so you do a restaurant? We would do a restaurant. Um, I would definitely have an indoor tap. Um, it would be it would be something a little bit more specialized, like with a vibe. And yeah, I do it all over again. I do, but more IPAs, especially and more lactose for sure. More milkshake yeah, IPAs. Like, I I like milkshake IPAs. I <laughs> I understand why people like those things. Yeah, well, thankfully I have more patience in my old age because I can still be a friend even though you like those things. You're an asshole, but you're a good asshole. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. I, I guess that's subjective. But right. Sure. But that is an interesting question, though. So, obviously, I am not someone who appreciates the milkshake IPA or even, in a sense, kind of where the IPA market's gone overall. I'm, like, terrified to even try to comprehend where the industry could be going in the next decade. So, based on what you saw from the day you opened to now... I have to say that you weren't drinking milkshake IPAs in 2010. So you were not. thinking about this? No. Like, where are we going with this? What's the point of thinking about it? Like, because it's fun. It <laughs> All right. I don't. I have no idea, and I, that's not something I really think about. Where the where the where the industry's going? Like, 
I'm just going to ride the wave and see what's up. Because I know what I like, and I know what I want to brew. And then if I, somebody else is innovating, that's cool. I would like to see, personally, I would like to see more wine beer hybrids. We made this uh, Russian Imperial Stout that we aged in a Merlot barrel, and it was, it was fucking delicious. So I hear kind of rumblings about that on some of the other podcasts I listen to, industry stuff, but I don't know if that's where it's going to go. That's where I'd like to see it going. Wine beer hybrids are great. Well, maybe if somebody else makes a little work, yeah. I have perfected the wine beer hybrid over the last four years, and they don't sell it. Yeah, you need a better marketing team. <laughs> I can't move them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, they're, and they're beautiful. They're basically like lightly carbonated tannic rosés that have like a clean finish because of the beer in the back. Uh, we use wine pomace actually, so partner up with the winemaker, and when they're finished pressing grapes, we'll rehydrate them with barrel aged beer. They're not commercially viable. Uh, and like, if I had all the money in the world, I would set up a inside the brewery. There would also be like a fruit processing where we just take fresh ingredients and process them. Because fucking bacon, three hundred pounds of sweet potatoes every time I did that sweet potato porter. Damn. Oh yeah. <laughs> we would roast. Three to four hundred pounds of sweet potatoes. How many batches was that? I had some friends in, in with commercial ovens, uh, so I could do. It was like it could be an eight-hour day, it could be a six-hour day, depending on how long it went. And then, uh, like a, an immersion blender the size of a jackhammer, <laughs> which was fun. And then we, I would roast them at that place, and then take them to the take them to the brewery and dump them in the fermenter. So I would like to see like a I don't know exactly, but like a fruit processing system alongside the brewery. Some people put distilleries in. I want to make cool hybrid products. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Jeremy, since you're in the retail tier, you know, the front lines, yeah. give me your most ridiculous prediction of what's going to happen in the next five years. Um, ridiculous prediction? Yeah, I don't want the good one. Don't tell me the industry's going to go back to Pilsner because we all know it's not going to happen. No, Pilsner no. life. <laughs> I agree with you, but it's not. Right. I don't know. I think that the, the bar model is probably not going to change very much. I mean, Craft beer bars are craft beer bars, and they've kind of been the same for 20 years. We're just going to sell whatever keeps being profitable for the breweries. The big problem is just like, what are the distributors actually going to be able to pick up in stock? Because that's our biggest problem. With volume. For a bar, because we're buying a couple of cases. We're not a grocery store buying pallets. So really, at least the bar model is just going to follow whatever the stupid motherfuckers going to the grocery <laughs> store are buying. I bet the big one, though, might be, like, Creeks and, like, Lambics. I think that might be, like, the next... They, they take too long. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, so right. Someone's going to figure out how to do that shit with that new uh, sour yeast or whatever. But, I mean, I think that's where, like, having more breweries in this town than two or three would help drive. Because we have, we'd have a local flavor. You know? Right. And, and I really should, hope Savage works out. They're going to be fine. They're... Not in a good spot right now, but they're going to be fine. They've got the, I like you guys, Jason, but they're they're suffering from a lot of the same quality issues that we have. Oh, we get yeah. Because they've got a one-barrel electric system. She, uh, Laura, is a PhD. And she worked for Shiner in their QA lab, so she knows her shit. Jason worked Jason for Flood. And, and uh, Thirsty Planet. Yeah. It's like they both are industry people. They know what they're doing. They're going to be fine. Give them six months to a year. If you keep going, you can make it. Yeah, exactly. that's right. the unfortunate part. You have to make it through that. But well, that's like that's the problem with this town. Like Dean's talking about, those where a town like Brian Color Station is about two hundred fifty thousand people currently. Two breweries, Blackwater Savage Savage Brew Lab, just opened up, and so they're suffering from some of the like. Hey, we're still really small. We're a husband and wife operation. Can we make it through? But like a two hundred fifty thousand person town can support more than two breweries. At it least, really yeah. can. Like, yeah, easily. It's just 
The New Braunfels is 80,000. We have four. We've got a meadery opening up and a distillery opening up here in downtown for sure. And then I keep hearing things about other breweries coming to town, but we'll see. The brewery and planning thing. Well, mm-hmm. There's 30 breweries in the town. Always, yeah. There are, <laughs> yeah. Like, We've had one guy in New Braunfels that's been a brewery and planning since uh, right about 2012. Right? Let's talk about distribution. Sure. How did you guys get your beer to market? We were self-distributed first and always. That all the way all the way into Houston too. All the way into Houston. So yeah. this came back to sort of like the problems we had initially in this town. This should have been our town. We were the only brewery in town, but we had quality issues. So we decided to go to Houston because it was not that far. Um, is a gigantic market. So we were about 50-50 split distribution here and there. So we bought, eventually we bought, when we, when we sort of like expanded to our 20-barrel system, we bought a used plumber van, like a Dodge 350, one ton. It was fucking awesome. It was great. It was a workhorse. But you could, like, you had to, there was no safety. Like, if you rolled over, you were going to get a keg to the back of the head. Easy. <laughs> I had that happen to me once on the way to Dallas. <laughs> Not a keg, but the traffic on the highway on 35, which there always is. Yeah. And I had to slam on the brakes. And an entire case of pitch black, 9% alcohol, uh, barrel-aged sour, comes through the back, oh, lands on the dash, and just explodes. <laughs> like, fuck! Yeah, yeah, we had no cage, no nothing. But um, that was a good workhorse. We, so we distributed, we were self-distributed, uh, which I think was the way to go. I think, because because like you said, you don't you can't rely on your distributors to sell your beer for you. And you figure that out real quick, or you just live with it and wonder why you're not selling well. And from the bar's perspective, distributors do not sell beer. <laughs> They just, like, take, just, they just to, take orders. I have to go through every list every time and be like, hey, do you have this? And they're like, no, nah, we haven't picked it up yet. It's on your line sheet. Like, will you order it? No. Um, and a corollary to that is, no offense, Jeremy, but don't rely on bartenders to sell your beer either. Oh, you know? no, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, like, I I definitely sell beer the best at my bar. Back to distribution. We quartered a few distributors. What was that? Yeah, Blue Bonnet, maybe? I think they were the, <laughs> like, they had that, like, they had that million dollar or whatever in, like, logistics system that they were so proud of um, they were fine I mean but but it didn't make sense for us because the the margin hit that we would have taken was stupid and we had one sales guy that was another mistake that we made is not having the sales staff to support wasn't it you? it was John so like it was both of us um, <laughs> officially John was supposed to be the sales guy and then we we hired um, a guy named Jeremy one of my friends uh, who was who was like getting a PhD in rhetoric so he could talk and he liked beer and he did, he, like, Jeremy, I love you. You're great. Thank you for thank you for doing everything you did. Did you say a PhD in rhetoric? Yeah. Like, that's a thing? Yeah. Communications. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he could he could talk about... for everybody listening, it's a different Jeremy. It's a different Jeremy, yeah. <laughs> so, but he was running ragged all over Houston and College Station. We did not support, being focused on the distribution, we did not support our, we did not have a sales staff to support that because they're expensive or whatever. We didn't think, I don't know, it was, that was a mismatch right there for sure. It's a tough investment because once you, in my opinion, when you write that down on paper, you almost always realize you're losing on the employee. Yeah. So it's, in some ways, it's better not to. Because <laughs> I did it in my book. I go through, if you distribute 100 grand a year at average rate, you know, wine cleaning, you lose about nine grand. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to do 150. Yeah, do 100, I think it was 170 was the break even or something, ultimately. Yeah, when I when I did our market analysis, we were in Katy, we were in the Heights, we were in... Uh, Cyprus, we were elsewhere. And this was at the time both John and I were doing sales. So Jeremy left because we worked the shit out of him. So John and I were, were doing the distribution and, and sales. It just wasn't making sense. We were losing money in Katy every time we did with the volume that we were doing Katy. Mm. So we should have, I said, wait, we should pull out of Katy completely because we're losing money and nobody wanted to do that. So, so since you self-distributed and most of the people it seems like I've had on the show uh, went to a distributor, yeah. uh, one of the arguments that a distributor will tell you in that meeting 
they've got the connections in their chain sales. So mm-hmm. how was that as an independent distributor dealing with a behemoth like HEB or Specs or you didn't really have total wine probably at the time, but a few maybe. HEB was easy to deal with. I didn't mind that because uh, probably because the beer, like the overall beer guy was an Aggie. The rest of the, yeah. 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 So we had that connection. We had our shit together enough. We bought our own USPC codes. We had, we were, we dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. We were eventually... Like, we knew what we were doing, getting into HEB, getting into Kroger. Uh, we knew exactly what we had to do. Specs was a different beast because, what's his name, did all the buying for everything. Justin. Justin, yeah. Who has not responded to my attempts to interview him. Justin, if you're listening, come on the fucking show. Yeah, come on the show and explain <laughs> yourself, please. Because we were there for that transition between all the, like, the local Specs having control over what they would buy to when Justin took over all the ordering for yeah. all the specs in the goddamn state. Which is almost 180 stores, I think. Yeah, like that's crazy. So we lost, we lost like Montrose specs. So Smith Street, the main specs, dipped a shit ton. Our local specs here was was great. Our local specs was really good. The one here on um, at Harvey and in, in University of Texas. They're, yeah, store, uh, store 37. They sold, yeah, they sold 37, here pretty yeah. well, too. Yeah, yeah. For being out of, out of town brewery, I was surprised. But they... Eventually, they became, they were super supportive. Figure out all the, the vagrancies of ordering and delivering and POs for, for your, if you're going to go into distribution, you've got to know the quirks of HEB ordering, the quirks of Kroger ordering. Um, those are your two big ones. I'd say Kroger, Specs, and HEB. What about, what about Twin Liquors? Were you in there? We were in Twin Liquor. That was less of a chore because we only did one Twin Liquor, the one here in They were nice. They were easy to work with. That was uh, back when they had a guy who handled it who was an absolute fan of craft beer. Yeah. Yeah. He left, and then they're not as easy to deal with anymore. <laughs> Duke, Duke Egbert, he was a good guy. Yeah, so if you're lucky and you get, get people who understand craft beer buying it, that's great. So you're lucky to get those. If if it's somebody who doesn't really, like, who's just a wine buyer or who doesn't, like, who's just in a job, then you've got to work a little harder. Most of those people just, like, take your PO and say, yeah, we're going to bring in this, this, and this. As long as you're there fronting and facing product, they'll just go with it. So it's I liked groceries and, and liquor stores because it was kind of easy, whereas bars were... Bars, like, every single goddamn bar is different. And well, it's hard because their schedules are off. So, like, at least the grocery store is open at 8 in the morning. Delivery is, like, between 2 a.m. and 12 p.m. And that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. and it definitely changes yeah. the dynamic quite a bit. No, I'm, I'm sure not here. here. No, we're not here. <laughs> well, I'm at, yeah, I'm actually here most of the time. I answered the phone. He answered the phone while I was here. And, yeah, I heard it. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. So I, I tried to, I focused more on grocery because that's where our volume was going, but we never really got into the bar driving the grocery purchases sort of thing. But also back to your point, I was just on my honeymoon in Portugal for two weeks, and so one of our bar staff was having to take deliveries. He wouldn't take a delivery until 4 p.m. Yeah, because yeah. that's when we opened. It's one advantage of self-distributions. You can usually lean on and be like, well, if you want the sale, come over, and they usually will. Yeah, or, yeah. and you can be flexible, too. Well, I use the example of Live Oak. Live Oak delivers in the raffles every single day. Do they? My distributor wow. delivers once. <laughs> Damn, come on. Yeah. And they make some of the best beer in Texas, so yeah. there's that. So, yeah. yeah I, like, I like the 512 guy a lot just because he drives through and he's like, here's what I got on my truck. Yeah. Do you need anything? He says, As opposed to, like, I have to remember to order specifically from 512. He just brings stuff. It's right. like, do you need this? Yeah. yeah. And I, I order from them and they even bring me a t-shirt and a hat. I'm like, oh, nice. nobody fucking does that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I would never do that. I'm surprised to see them in package, not drafted. Like, I don't know when they made that change. They didn't have a choice. Right. Oh, really? Right oh, COVID. sure. COVID, yeah. it's, a, it's a sign. Of, I mean, so think about that, too. Like, Live Oak for years was never a package. Yeah. And the industry's changed. It's, you, for one, the, the handles are so tight that you have to have a bit of a strategic play in more than one place. So yeah. if, if your business only is relying on one channel, you're in trouble. So I think that's part of it. They just they didn't have a choice. Yeah. 
do what you gotta do to survive, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure they'll come on the show and tell me I'm completely full of shit, but <laughs> from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like. Because you're full of shit. Correct. Summarize the whole thing for me. So, self-distribution versus professional distribution, and your business specifically, right play, wrong play. I think it was the right play. It was garbage execution, but it was the right play. So, as you decided that you were going to grow, for example, yeah. if you wanted to be in Dallas, El Paso, Louisiana, would you have considered a distributor at that point? Or would you say, no, fuck it, we're only going to go wherever we can drive and that's it? Surely we would have. But at the time that we would even begin to think about that, the market was shrinking, as you say. Sorry, the market was expanding. If I had my druthers, we would have focused on this town, this town first, this town only, until we were at the market saturation. And then we could expand further. That's one of the advantages of being in bigger towns. You've got more opportunities. But being a, like, this is why you should start small people. <laughs> we, our overhead was fairly low and we did everything ourselves and we knew how to fix our shit. So like our operating cost was not that much. So we could afford to grow slowly, mm. I think. That makes sense. <laughs> We're going to rename this episode, uh, Everything Kelly Said Was Bullshit episode, uh, which is fine. I don't mind. Dean is a cheerleader for the... That's the hobby brewery. The hobby brewery. So I really, really want to get into online beer reviews. It's one of my favorite parts of this entire show. I have such a counter opinion to you, so let's go. But you have an open mouth and an empty beer, so I'm going to take a quick break first, (laughs) and then uh, when we come back, let's let's agree to disagree. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. I've been looking forward to this segment. (laughs) All right, good. Well, welcome back. Glad you guys have beer, ready to go. If you listen to the podcast at all, you know how much I love to hate online beer reviews. And so uh, let's just go right into it. No, no pretense, no bullshit. Yes. Online beer reviews, the devil. We, everyone's got a different opinion. So the thing I don't like about online beer reviews is that in general, when Beer Advocate was a thing, people spent the time to rate a beer five ways, thought about it, paired it against some standard that they either loved or had heard about, and then created a rating based on a scale. And since Untapped has systematically destroyed that <laughs> logical, intelligent way of deciding what they, someone wants to like or drink, 
and you're getting a lot of I hate that guy half a star or Pilsners are garbage one cap as opposed to understanding the concept. So before we get any further, Dean, I would love to give you an opportunity to retort everything that I've ever said. <laughs> I think you need to free yourself of the content of the review. You need to separate the content of the review from the engagement. Because, all right, okay. beer advocate, yes, there was a bunch of beer nerds who liked beer, who were, like, some of them were BJCP judges, like, some of them were not, some of them thought they were. So, I don't know, that, that's fine. And beer advocate was a laborious process to rate a beer. So there were, you need to put some effort into it. So maybe, maybe you put some thought into it. With Untapped, yeah, you could just click. God forbid, maybe you were even sober when you had to do maybe. that. But... I looked at Untapped in a completely different way. I saw that as people were trying to engage with the brewery. So I would spend maybe two hours every week on two different days going through every single one of our check-ins and either giving it a cheers or a comment. If it was a negative comment, I would just say, thanks for trying. That was it. If it was a positive comment, I'd say cheers. And that got us so much goodwill with the community um, that the actual brewery was commenting on their check-in that I think that was invaluable to like promoting the brand. Yes, of course, there were a lot of like garbage reviews, but you just have to like ignore the content of the review and see it as a way to reach your customers. Okay. So, so, so I agree with you on that side. I will ask you one clarification question yeah. or at least one. <laughs> um, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but when did you leave New Republic? It was uh, 20, so like between 2016, 2017. So uh, you can't go back that far on Untapped anymore. I knew that. Okay. They changed it where your rating for the beer is still an aggregate of every single review ever made. Oh, wow. But you can only go back. I think it's a fixed number of reviews. I don't think at the time. So I can only yeah, go back to 2019 on most of those. Yeah, it's a fixed number because I am a verified venue and like they told me all of these things about it when they were selling me on it. Yeah, so I would have loved to have been able to pull some of those responses yeah. that you have, but as I look back, they're all too old. I can't get to them. I wonder if that's so on the Wayback Machine. They Maybe. stopped they stop doing it. All right. Uh, hey, untapped. Change to a rolling average. My, so my argument would have been, and this is completely not really on the subject, but yeah. I feel like if you're going to cut the, the visual reviews, then you should cut the weighted average based on the reviews you cannot see. Right. Mainly because, yeah. like you yeah. said, and this is an issue that I had, the beer wasn't good in the beginning. Right. And so if I didn't kill that brand and start it over with a new name, then the old review that I made on a one-barrel system with no bright tank is still reflective right. of the current. Of the current, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a bit not understanding the industry or not caring about it. I think it would be more of just it's an apathy. Especially now that people look at untapped ratings to make their purchasing decisions. So that's what... That's what's a detriment to the industry is like, yeah, they are, consumers are trying to figure out what beer they want to buy. And in such a saturated market, then they've got to go to a source they trust, which is their friends. So don't trust your friends. People. Ever. <laughs> your, your friends are assholes. <laughs> so did you do that with, you can do it on Google as well. I don't know if you can do it on Yelp. You can do it with Yelp, I think, too. I only paid attention to Untapped. Like Google reviews, Yelp reviews, like fuck them. Because Untapped was specifically for beer. And at the time... It was mostly craft people who drink craft beer. It wasn't the people checking into Budweiser because their friends were on it. And I don't know. I don't know. It was a different time back then. Maybe it's different now. Yeah. Well. Well, I mean, in our town, not really. <laughs> yeah. Because we only have. Well, because you guys are still like 1900 turn yeah. of the century, right. basically. Like we only have like five verified venues on Untapped. The whole city, really? Yeah, we were one it's, at the at the sandwich shop. Yeah. Yeah, but it's yeah. There's 
minimal. There's two pizza places that are owned by the same guy. There's my bar. World of Beer, probably. World, no, I don't think oh. World of Beer is actually verified. They've got their own app. There's a hotel and O'Banus. Okay. And Carnes. Carnes, yeah, sure. So. Yeah, a handful. Yeah. So, yeah, we're in a different town, which is why we and need more college, breweries. And, and this is a college town where there's 100 bars. And 50,000 college students, at least, every year come and go. So, yeah. yeah and they're still drinking whatever's cheap. Well, cases, for sure. Many cases. But, but. the, the uh, grad student community is great. No, the grad student community loves craft beer. Yes. Like, that was one of our big breakthroughs uh, was the grad student community. Like, they would come out, we would host mm-hmm. events for them. Nice. And sense, then yeah. I think... Because they're adults. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Well, exactly. They are adults. And because Texas A&M is so huge, the graduate student population is still like yeah. fifteen to 20,000 people that are like in their mid-20s early 30s and they still like right. drinking but they want to differentiate themselves from their college their undergrad yeah <laughs> so, they, they need yeah. to differentiate themselves yeah, exactly. right you're gonna find out here in a second i did print some of your untapped reviews but i did not print one of your google ones that i meant to and for some reason I, who knows what the hell i was doing last, i was drinking some whiskey last night but that's probably not why but there was one you had on google this chick gave you like a i don't even know if it was a full one i think it might have been a decimal point okay she was livid pissed because and, and I think this may have been after you left, I don't know, but there was an anniversary party. She came to the anniversary party and she was told that to listen to the music and to drink the beer you had to buy the twenty dollar wristband. And she thought that was not only unreasonable, but that it would be reasonable to then go online and complain about the unreasonableness of it. And so you have a shitty review on Google because you had an event which had a cover charge <laughs> and she felt that you shouldn't have. Well, and I mean, that's gonna live I'm forever. Pretty, now. And I'm pretty sure it was free beer at all of those events. I, no, it was pre-purchase tickets, but yeah. yeah. One of the things I like about the show is I like to just let it go where it's going to go. I was positive that you were going to say, well, I'm pretty sure that was fucking Sally. Like, <laughs> you knew her. That was fucking <laughs> That would have been great. So what? Who cares? Like, but it I, matters. It, not only does it lower your score, it I mean, lives forever. So there is a reality in which people look at it. And, and I know for a fact that people will look and decide whether to go to a place based on negative reviews, just like Amazon has negative reviews of a product. People sure. will look at that. How much weight it has is, is anyone's guess, and it's subjective, but it still fucking sucks. Like, I like to think that you, the consumer out there, are smarter than that to see, to be able to recognize one bad review and say, oh, that's just some wacko. But maybe not. I don't know. Hey, are you guys done out there? I don't know. Tell me. I guess we'll find out all the hate mail that I get. Give me a call. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, it's a it's a thing, because I, I rely much more on local... Since, since you're a local... If you're a local brewery, then you got to rely on the local network and word of mouth. And yeah, sure, like people are going to hear about you. Maybe people are going to find you on the tourists and the parents coming here with their kids for their college game day or whatever, football, like LSU. They're going to see those reviews for sure. So they might have been the one that wrote them. Maybe. Who knows? But I, I don't know. Like, I'm much more, I get a little more faith in people, which for good or for bad, that's, <laughs> that's the way I think about things. Well, I hope that that comes with a little bit of perspective of having not been in the industry for three years, Maybe. which I'm hoping to God happens to me. So I will love to have a follow-up where I tell you, like, you know what, Dean? I now agree with you. Let's, so hopefully let's get together in three years and start a brewery. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a terrible idea. It does sound like All right. So this is a little section I like to call the let's read some reviews, some yeah, real let's reviews. Let's do it. Just for the fun of it, let's have Jeremy start. Jeremy, I gave you some. You can read whichever ones you want. I think I gave you four. You get four. And uh, let's just have some fun. All right, we got Shania Q, Damn It Jim, M-A-L-T, parentheses, you don't like this, dot, 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 end parentheses. What the fuck does that mean? I have no idea what <laughs> so, that means. So she like, did earn a couple badges, so good on her. 
So she connected, but like in what way, right? Like, I don't even know what the fuck that means. Yeah, and there's not an actual rating on it. It's just <laughs> just a comment. Dean, what do you got? So this is from Mike. Hey, Mike. Damn it, Jim. This is death mix of hop, malt, and hop with them smell of bourbon. Heavier than what you'd expect from an amber. Cool. Is there bourbon in there? There was no bourbon in there. In or around? Was there even around? I mean, what does bourbon smell like? <laughs> Corn? Corn and booze to me. And like alcohol. <laughs> Corn and 47% alcohol. We can, so this is, we're just going to make fun of these fuckers because they don't know what they're talking about, right? That's, what, that's the point. No, not all of them. Some of them are going to be more fun than that. And I'm going to end on a high note too, okay. by the way. So Cool. All right. And then we got Kelly M. Astrolabe. Which is not me, by the way. <laughs> just to clarify. Yeah, Kelly Meyer. Like an old fancy wine got dropped in a barrel of beer and then the malt god sneezed on it three and a quarter. Yes. That one sounds fun. I like that one. So, man, I don't love the rating. I think that the three and a quarter, fine. He got a little poetic for having not like rated yeah. it high, but still, that was fun. Man, Astrolabe was such a good beer. and It really was. It good really was a good beer. The first couple. And I had an opportunity. Um, I was down in Houston. Um, oh, yeah. You, two or three someone, months ago. Someone yeah. had an old bomber. And John Denman yeah. pulled out a bottle of Astrolabe because we were at a punk rock fest um, in Spindletown, which is fucking awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so John pulled out this bottle of Astrolabe in it. I was curious because it could have been one of those bad years because we tried to recreate an accident and it's so hard. Um, and it was good. So good. And that's kind of a perfect description of Astrolabe, too. Yeah. I thought it was a cool one. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. I love when they get creative and then, yeah. and then it's fun to read, but. If it's, if it's put meh, three stars, <laughs> yeah. I want to fucking stab him in the face. You see, you gotta, you gotta ignore the, the things they're saying and just like, and say, hi, we're, we're a brewery, we're people. So on that note, yeah. read the next one. Uh, you want to do... Uh, Wait, no, this <laughs> one. This one. Okay. <laughs> I don't even know what this means, but David B says, B-F-L-Y. I tried to, you can, there's certain sites you can Google what this shit means. B-F-L-Y. What does it mean? No one knows. It doesn't say <laughs> anywhere. There is a stock ticker butterfly, and it could be that. <laughs> yeah. It probably isn't, but it's possible. Let's see. Um, I actually happen to know who he is, which is even funnier than Be fucking like you. Be fucking like you. He's yeah. fucking like you. He's fucking like you. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> All right. What do you got? Uh, I got C. James M. Cadigan. Nice blonde ale, best served with friends and good conversation. 2.25. I felt like, they, I felt like he was saying he liked it. Yeah, and that was actually... That came right off the can. So all of our oh, beers... Oh, really? Yeah, I said, um, we had this, you know, like, every craft brewery wants to do that shit. Wants to be fancy, puts their serving pairings and shit. And so ours were always, pairs well with this, this, and good friends. Yeah. Because, you know, or good company, or whatever. But that sounded like a great review for yeah. two stars. <laughs> like, jeez. Yeah, all right. So whatever, two stars. Who cares? <laughs> C. James. Come on. Yeah. All right. You got one? The same beer, Cadigan, um, which was a blonde ale. <laughs> On the darker side, hops are very subtle. So you know, like I don't know what darker I, side of what. She had a picture, and I thought I printed it. But apparently, I didn't. <laughs> Whatever she was drinking, I don't think it was Cadigan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's. Was this a can? Yeah, it was a can. So who knows what she got? This was it after you left. Yeah. So surely, yeah. surely it was after. We got windless sweet potato porter. Very tasty porter, much like salon door tasty AF. Period. Four stars. Do you know what hey. Slendor Tasty AF is? No, well, it's a IPA, right? What is it? Peanut butter milk stout. <laughs> okay, that's not anything like that. I mean, it's a it's a dark beer. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> it's roasty, right? This Ferrari is just <laughs> like my fucking Mazda Miata. No, it's not. Like you can't just say that. I mean, whatever. Like people have different tastes. I don't care. Like <laughs> I just think that shit's annoying because you know. I'm trying to decide like 
how is my beer being received by the community? Yeah. And that doesn't help you with that at all. <clears throat> or it it's, does, and you don't know what to do. It's at least a good review, and it tells you that this person doesn't really know what beer is. They enjoy like, the they like, they like the beer. Right. So, yeah. there you go, I guess. Well, let's end on a high note. Yeah. You may not recognize the voice, but you right. probably recognize the name. Yeah. I got a quote from a friend, uh, a friend of mine who happens to be a friend of your breweries. All right. So, we'll play that for you right out. Hey, Blake, what do you think about New Republic Brewing Company? Man, that is... That is perfectly timed, uh, and I've got to say, as I as I sit here looking at a Damn It Jim tap handle from New Republic Brewing, I've got a smile on my face. <laughs> that beer is so aptly named. New Republic will always have a special tap in my mind for a couple of beers and a ton of great memories. Two beers in a story really encapsulate that brewery in my mind. Skylight and Batch 1 Astrolabe. <laughs> I fondly remember my first Skylight sitting in a bar on Northgate, probably Dudley's Draw, and some of the most vivid banana esters I've ever had in a beer. But for the color, I would have sworn it was a head. And then Batch 1 Astrolabe was really New Republic's lightning in a bottle. It's one that it's one of those very few beers out there that I wish I still had a huge stash to dip into every now and then when the perfect moment arrived. Word. And then <laughs> the story behind Damn It Jim is one of the most comical David and Goliath cease and desist stories that exist in Texas craft beer. So Damn It Jim... I wish Astrolabe was more than a fleeting moment in time, and I had a proper pour of Skylight in my nodded pint this evening after work. Prost. Blake, whoever you are, thank you. Um, yeah, like, Astrolabe was an accident. Astrolabe version one was an accident. It was such a beautiful accident, and I wish I could recreate it, but there was so many... There was there was definitely Pediococcus in there. There was, like, there was so much other stuff that I couldn't... We, could, we tried. We couldn't. It was lightning in a bottle, like you said. Um, and Skylight was... Definitely a delicious beer that nobody knew, nobody liked. <laughs> it was a Dunkelweiss. First of all, it was Dunkelweiss, which is not a Dunkel lager, yeah. not a Hefeweizen. And it was so subtle. And my wife, um, for I think my birthday, she did a lit search and compiled like, how do you get so much banana flavor into a beer? So she like she did a, a she did a lot of work and research into into the specific yeast that we use and how you like tweak that. And minimize the clove and and uh, and keep that banana going. And it's just fucking under pitching. <laughs> basically, yeah. A little bit of temp control, but yeah, not much. Like not much temp control, but basically under pitching is. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, Skylight was such a beautiful beer too that nobody liked. Which is about that. What what's that about being brewing beer that's profitable and not popular? Yeah, we made a Dunkel Weizen too, and it was just it was always a hard sell. Mm-hmm. The alcohol is too low. The flavor's too high. It just it missed most people. Yeah. But it's a beautiful beer, and especially just if you want. Though it's it's what people think Shiner Bach is in a sense. Kind of. Yeah. We got a lot of comparisons place. to Shiner. Yeah. But it's better. It's in every conceivable way. Yeah. It's more refreshing. And if I never have another Shiner, it'll be too soon. I refuse. Yeah. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Not just because they tried to sue me once, but yeah, that was fucked up. Excellent. Yes, I remember that. I think. Yeah. So uh, let's. Let's just change gears a little bit, or not. It's been hanging over our head the whole day. What's that? Let's talk about your departure. Yeah. Honestly, intentionally did not do a lot of research outside of what I knew from talking to you, whatever, but I don't really know what precipitated it, and I don't know the whole story, and and so I'm in the same position as our audience. Why don't you enlighten all of us together? Well, I mean, we're all kind of in the same situation, because I'm not still quite sure, but anyway. But you didn't want to leave. I, right. And still wish you hadn't, in a sense, right? So this is a 2018, you said, basically? No, it was 2015, so it was around... Only a couple years in? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, four, we, we started in 2010. Yeah, yeah. You didn't open, you didn't move in your building till 11, though, right? Well, that was our first sale. 2011 was our first sale. Okay. So maybe it was 16. It was probably 16. 17, I kind of took off. 18. No, maybe it was 16, 17. What the fuck year is it right now? 21? Yeah. <laughs> Halfway through. I had a restaurant for two years, and uh, now I'm opening a grocery store. Blake Steaks was made badass. Cheese Steaks, by the yeah. way. And don't worry, we're bringing back Blake Steaks in, inside this grocery. Anyway. And always a great beer selection. Thank you. <laughs> but nobody, like... I mean, people didn't take advantage of it, no. but like, it was cool. I'm sure Blake did. <laughs> no, he didn't. I did, mostly. I mean, I bought the beers that I wanted to drink. But anyway, we'll get into that later because, I don't know, it's, we can talk about being a retailer for sure. So this was like, all right, we're going to set the stage. Um, this was winter of whatever year it was, probably 2016. Was it a cold winter? No, no set the stage. Because cool. I was in California. Ah, okay. Um, visiting, because I... I, I came here from California, so we were back visiting my my wife's folks in Southern California. So it was beautiful. It was lovely. And John would always, always get anxious when I took two weeks vacation. I never took any other vacation. I don't know what the fuck was, why he got so pissed off about me taking vacation. Did he take vacation? He had kids, so he was always in and out. Yeah. Like, when, you know, because they, you know, they got doctor's appointments or they get sick or whatever. So like, yes. I have kids. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so yeah, he was, he had, he was, he had his share of being out and his wife had a business, had her own business. So eventually, sometimes he would go over there and like fix some shit over there too. So like, it was not like I was taking a full two weeks off and, and he was working. He did, he, like, he worked hard. I'm not going to say that, but like, there was no reason why he shouldn't get anxious and pissy that I took a two week vacation. Anyway, so I was in Southern California and by that time we had kind of been feeling the crunch, like sales. We had grown enough that we were like trying to figure shit out and, our sales weren't keeping up, and the cash flow was starting to become an issue, like, like you write about. Um, because there's, I don't know how people make money in this in this business. The more research I do, the less I know that answer yeah. that question as well. So John got anxious. I don't know. Anyway, and we had this little fight. We had a big fight. We had one of our biggest fights over the phone about, about nothing, about something, because we were bringing Nick the Dick on as a partner, as a capital partner, and so we kind of like, were like trying to figure out what we we're going to do. So he and, was. He was essentially kind of a capital call. He was bringing money to yeah. float operations, essentially. So he was going to get some ownership, <sighs> which right. happens a lot. Hold up. <laughs> <laughs> we were the, the operation side, my side, was doing pretty well. We've, we had had our, our quality issues in the past, for sure. There's no doubt about it. We've recalled beers, we've, but we had a solid handle. We were operating smoothly and we had a schedule. So like operations was fucking good from, from my point of view. Sales were garbage. <laughs> One of the things that we did, we, we had this fight between sales and, and, and production. Like, I didn't want to make, I didn't want to overproduce. And John said, hey, we need to, we need more beer so I could sell it. So I eventually I said, fine, fuck it. I'm just going to run flat out and we are going to, we're going to make as much beer as we can push out through this, this brewery. And eventually after two months, the cold box was full. As you would expect. Of beer and sales were, sales were not there. So. Was that what he was complaining about? Essentially that your core SKUs weren't available when he went to a retailer to try to place it? Or he didn't have something new and interesting to sell. I think it was time. the core thing. Like I, I don't. I think he was anxious about about the schedule and maybe if there was a hiccup, then we would not be able to deliver beer. We would not be able to deliver. Yeah, you, know? you were running too tight a line. Yeah, which I would agree as a spreadsheet person or a yeah. responsible business person makes sense. But mm-hmm. in this industry, I think you have to ride that line. If you try to ride an inventory, you're in deep shit. Yeah. At least yeah. that's been my experience. And it's a real delicate balance because you got to know your beer has a shelf life. A six month, if you're good, a six month shelf life, three months for ours, maybe. So we can't keep all that inventory. 
especially if it's going to sit on a shelf in a grocery store for a month. <laughs> this was kind of like the production was running at a good clip, and our, we were stocked on beer. And we brought the Limey Brit on. I'm not exactly sure why, because... Nick, the Limey Brit? Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. That's good. I, for a minute, I thought that might have been a new beer. No, no. <laughs> why did we... We need... I don't know. It sounds like you might need the money. Like, that we, was part of it. Of but. course, we all need money. But we weren't sure what we were going to do with that money, because there was this this idea of either, like, upgrade the system, which was shit. The system was garbage. It was dairy tanks and janky, like, homebrew equipment. Not, like, homebrew homebrew equipment, but, like, God bless John, because he taught himself how to do industrial, like, processing things. He built us a $50,000 cake washer for $2,000. We bought Independence's chiller when they upgraded, like, many years ago. Like, it was basically a compressor a pump and a falling apart insulated box and he built a completely new glycol system out of it he saw himself fucking steam fitting and built our steam like like you retrofitted an old fucking car wash steam generator installed it cut all the pipe anyway he knew what he, he when when he had a task when he had a technical task he knew what he was doing not so much when it came to sales very different skill set yeah very different yeah. skill set he was very much a developer he wanted to wanted to play with new equipment and if, let's come back to that in a minute we're talking about me later. So we were kind of like trying to figure out what we we're going to do with this this money, and the two of them wanted to upgrade our equipment. Something specific? We weren't exactly missing anything, but it was a super janky like put so together. The new brew house would yeah. have been yeah. cleaner, yeah. For sure. I yeah. guess. Yeah. I mean, I went and brewed at, at Blackwater here um, a couple times, and like it's just so easy. It's stupid. For me, I was like disconnecting hoses, moving hoses around, building these all these triclover fittings like to make a manifold so I could do the. So I could put stuff in the grant and then the kettle. And then once that was done, I would disassemble, disassemble that and put it on the, the work, the heat exchange. It's like, it was a very labor intensive process, yeah. but I had it down and I knew what I was doing and we were making good beer. Our fermenter, like I said, our fermenters were new. Our glycol system was solid. So like we could have continued on that way without purchasing new equipment. And I was thinking we need to transition to being a local taproom brewery. So we need to invest that money since either we're going to put that into distribution like we should be, or we're going to put it into tapping. Not new equipment. We don't need shiny new equipment to make beer because you can do it. Hey, start small. Once again, <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> no, do whatever Dean says. No, just follow Dean's lead. Fine. <laughs> so we were, there was this slight sort of disconnect on what we were going to spend this money on. And so we were, we were arguing, we were yelling at each other over the phone. This is when you're in California. Yeah, back in California. I'm sitting in my wife's childhood bedroom so maybe not part of the issue but um, again i'm trying to think of this from like our audience's perspective yeah. did uh nick the limey brit come up to you guys or were you looking for investments at that time a little bit of both nick is a very generous guy when you first get to know him if you're in his in group he's a nice guy everybody else he's an ass he's mm-hmm. like a total big he knew how to work refrigeration so like we put her in two cold boxes ourselves three cold boxes ourselves and so it was nice to have a guy who knew refrigeration who could fill us up. Anyway, he made himself useful and he had too much money and not enough brain cells like most of us in this industry. Beer attracts that apparently. <laughs> it does. No offense, Jeremy. <laughs> and he lived like right down the street. I have so... an oil and gas career. <laughs> so he lived right down the street so he was always there. I said, hey, like a couple hundred grand? Yeah, let's use that. Let's do something with it. And let's bring him on as a partner. It was, that was probably a mistake. Come to think of it. That was a mistake. Anyway, so yeah, we had this, this argument over the phone that was that was the end of that conversation. It was maybe three more days till I was coming back to, back to Texas to get back to work. And so I come back 
And I come to work the next day. Typically, John's there. He wasn't there all day. So like, I knew something was up. And I had already thought of three, like, all the scenarios. Like, okay, what if I just fucking take it? That's fine. So when he did come in, it was 4.30 <laughs> on a Friday afternoon. He came in and said, I think you should leave. So I said, all right, let me think about it. Let me talk to my wife. Talk about it. So we were, <laughs> the next day, this was like December 31st or something. And so the next day, we always have a, sorry, this is December 20th. Anyway, this day before our New Year's Eve party. So we were all slated to come together and have a good time at this New Year's Eve party. He drops his bomb on me and says, hey, we don't want you here anymore. We as in him and the Limey Brit? Yeah, him and the Limey Brit. And I think he bullied the Limey Brit into, the Limey Brit is still an asshole, but I'm, if I'm going to place blame on this, I'm going to place blame first on me and then on John. So like, I go home, I talk to Adrian, and like, yeah, have a good cry and... And yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. If they don't want to work with me, I don't want to work with them. So that was the decision. I told him that. So yeah. just, just to clarify, was he offering to buy your shares, or he's offering yes. for you to get the fuck out? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that was the only good thing about that thing. They treated me like shit, but they paid me. <laughs> they, they, they were dumb and paid me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, more than, more than they. I don't know. Like it was great. It was, it was fair. They paid me fair. They treated me badly. Paid me fair. Which again, I tried to do as little research as I could, but yeah. could have been a interesting part of the story because in your original podcast you talk about how John did all the legal work he didn't write the contract he paid the attorney that did yeah so it wouldn't have surprised me if clause 97 uh, slash a subsection IIG was uh no in the beginning gets fucked in the <laughs> beginning we were like we were both we were both friends we were both like we were both wide-eyed and fully in this together like that's that's the thing but going into business together and having trouble like having a bad business together really does does things to you it's like it's so much like a marriage, you know, like yeah. a partnership. The only thing people fight about pretty right. much is money. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And sex, but we weren't doing that. So He had kids and he had more of a life. You were there all the fucking time. Because I loved it. It was great. Sure. <laughs> but like there was a, there was definitely a difference in the amount of labor that was put in between you and for him to get upset about your two-week vacation was absurd. And right. I know he did that a bunch of times because yes. it's like, no, and Dean is there all the fucking time. Always. And I think I've seen you, like, <laughs> maybe once this month. Yeah. Like... That's hard. So, at the end of the day, they didn't officially force you out. No. But they told you they didn't want to work with you anymore. Yeah. And offered you uh, a check. And yeah. So- the hardest part about that was was telling the production staff that I was leaving. I could see it. We always had a Monday morning, like, production meeting. And that was it. Like, I'm leaving. I didn't say anything. Like, everybody was there. Hey, I'm... This is three days after the Friday? Yeah, basically, yeah. So 4.30 Friday, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the initial conversation, you talked to your wife, mm-hmm. and that Monday you announced it to your boys. Yeah, because I had already thought about that. I had a couple days in California to think about yeah. all of the things that were, that could have happened. Once I make a decision, like, I I commit to it. If that's what happens, that's what happens. So, like, the hardest part was telling all these all these people who, like, I had a really good rapport with my production staff. I miss y'all. And they were, they were fucking awesome. My production staff was great. And they would do basically anything that I asked of them within reason. And his production meeting was like, yeah, we need to do this. How can we make this work? And it was a collaborative thing. And so I tell them, I'm leaving. I didn't really say, I didn't get into the politics of it or anything of that. And everybody's just like, everybody's shocked. What ended up happening is like everybody left after it. <laughs> within, within six months, the entire production staff is gone, which I think kind of shocked the owners. <laughs> Wasn't what they thought. No. So was that your last day, Monday? Or did you just come in for the meeting and then leave? I came in for the meeting, I packed up my office, and I left. I would assume that he would want you out sooner rather yeah. than later. And so. I didn't, if it was going to be, if it was going to be on, I would, I just wanted to be gone. I don't think they had a plan. <laughs> so I was just say, hey, bye. You want me gone? I'm gone. Good luck. Uh, John hadn't been in the production side for a year or two, so he didn't, he just thought everything was running smoothly. Like, one of the fucking things that he asked me, one of the fucking things, 
He said, we're on this phone. To the one in California? Yeah. He has the fucking balls to ask me, what do you do around here, Dean? What do you do? He had no idea what I did. That's a weird question. That is a weird question, right? The other half of the business you don't run? Yeah. Like, I don't really <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had no idea. Because I had set the place up so well that brewer was brewing, cellar guy was selling. Everything was running so smoothly that I could just, I could go to the gym on Tuesday, Thursday in the middle of the day and be fine. And everything would be good. I didn't have to be there every single goddamn day to like micromanage people. So I don't know. Fuck you, John. <laughs> For I asking agree. me that. Fuck you, John. <laughs> I'm on your team on this yeah. one. Okay, so obviously what had happened after that is that ultimately they ended up closing, which I would like to get into what your perspective was from that. And sure. I'd also like to get into you know, what your plans for the future are. I'm going to go fill that hole in that we dug a second ago because yeah. I feel guilty leaving on Jeremy's property. So let's come right back and we'll get into that. <laughs> buying your grains. You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Welcome back. So that last segment was uh, definitely emotional. I appreciate you sharing that with us. It was um, kind of cathartic. Yeah, glad you were able to get it out. I don't so. think I ever had the chance to do that. Besides, really? like venting to my wife. Yeah. Well, well your, your wife's internet post <laughs> describes. It yeah, her well. blog. I don't know if you've seen my wife's blog post. Uh, I may be sharing that on okay. our webpage. Cool, yeah. No, yeah. as of yet, I have not. <laughs> um, I am friends with her on Facebook. I'll, I can find it. But. Yeah. Uh, blog. Anyway, she waited for a while and then just like let it all out, which is good. That's not my style. But she wanted to make her feel and made me feel good because of all the nice things she had to say about me. <laughs> <laughs> so, was there uh, was there anything in that story that we did not get to that you want to mention before we move on? I really should have read that again before before coming on this. But her blog, yeah, her blog. Yeah. <laughs> we could just recite it right now. <laughs> right. No, I don't know. Like, I think she saw a lot of the same things that I've talked about. I value my staff. Like, they knew what they were doing. I love them, and I just like beer. It's like I'm happy about beer. That's why I wanted to get into this industry. That's why I get, want to get back into this industry because beer, sharing beer, enjoying beer with friends, and some live music. Huh. On that note, cheers, mm. Skull. Immediately after you get this humongous paycheck, what did, what did you do? And I assume at first it was a bit of a shock, and you had to take some time. But yeah. how did you recover? What what happened? Um, I don't know if I've recovered yet. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a softball. No, that, was, yeah. that was almost a spit take from Kevin. Yeah. No, like, I took six months off, just like completely off, doing nothing. And I was bored as shit. I kind of like collected my thoughts, gathered things, because it, it was my real, like, my, I've had one or two failed businesses before, but this was like a real business that failed. I did some web hosting back in the 90s that was like way before web hosting was a thing. It was just a server in my garage. Wait, that's not how it's done. <laughs> it used to be how it's done, maybe. Yeah, I took about six months off, and I wasn't sure what the fuck to do with them. I paid off my wife's student loans, considered paying off the house, and then we would be debt-free. Sorry, Blake, that was probably what I should have done. But, <laughs> <laughs> but instead, my friend... So here's the thing. When you're a brewery, you get food trucks, right? I've done food trucks, and I've done bands. 
I've tried to do scheduling for both. Food trucks are by far the worst people as far as reliability goes. And they are also extremely difficult to schedule. Yes. Like, I don't know if this is true everywhere, but yeah, I try and get food trucks to the bar. And food trucks, at least now, have totally moved away from the, hey, we move our truck and we go to new places. They just buy a truck because it's cheaper than opening up an actual restaurant. Yeah. And then they want to find somewhere they can just park. Yeah, it has to be great for them. And yeah. They don't do any marketing. Right. It makes sense for them, at least. Yeah. From a business perspective, it's garbage for us who don't serve food, who need food because people stay along and drink more. So food trucks were the, the worst to schedule and the least reliable, except for Blake. Whenever I asked him, he would. He said it would be there. He would be there. He would be open the full time. He would have food. Like, these are things. Food truck would show up. They had blown their generators. They couldn't serve food. Food truck showed up. They didn't see any people, so they just, like, fucking closed their window, but sat there doing nothing, <laughs> waiting for you. <laughs> like, yeah. The fuck? At least sell the two people that, <laughs> that want it. Right. Yeah. Be more reliable, food trucks. So Blake was the most reliable food truck. He was also a good guy. He appreciated beer. And he called me over to this place he was looking at because he was starting a brick and mortar because he wanted to get my opinion on the draft system, which I think I'm pretty sure was a ruse. Yeah, I don't think Blake's as dumb as you <laughs> no, think he is. He's <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> so I look at this place. I give him an opinion. And we, we talk and like, eh. He asked me if I wanted to invest in his restaurant. I said, sure. Because I knew that if I were going to do another brewery, it would have to be a brew pub. We would need food. So I would need some restaurant experience. So I again did the dumb thing and said, yes, let's start a restaurant. And Blake has been a much better partner, for sure, than, than the last guys. So at least there's that. We started a restaurant together. Which, I don't know if you any of those, if there's any restaurant people out there, it's hard. It's harder than a brewery, for sure. You ever run a restaurant? But same concept, where it's just super tight margin... Yeah, any mistake and you're just fucked for the month. You've got. I mean, that's 100 percent the reason why my kitchen is as tiny as it is at this bar. Like, yeah. we pre-prep sandwiches and we have a panini press. Yeah, that's panini food. press is the secret to the bar's success. <laughs> my, in my opinion, yeah. you don't need a grease trap. You don't need all that shit. You don't need a vent hood. Yeah, you don't well, need. Well, Brazos County made me put in a grease trap, even though I make more grease at my house than I do at this bar. <laughs> but that's. That's a story. Can you just use the, the old thing. gasoline tanks in the ground or whatever? <laughs> oh, luckily those were actually pulled out. That was like the one thing about this place that I didn't have to stick with that would have yeah. been a you had break to. the bank. Yeah. My, my dad had actually had a place when I was a kid that was a full service place. So my first job was actually pumping gas and checking oil for people. And uh, when they closed that, I remember it was like a city ordinance. Yeah. You had to fill that shit in. Right. Was, well, it may have been actually federal. It probably was. Super fun site. Yeah. Back to your cheesesteak story. Blake started off his food truck. When he first started coming out, he had this fucking awesome, like, Caribbean-Hawaiian fusion poke thing that this town was just not ready for. I was going to say, I don't remember that on the menu. I went there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he recognized that, and he made the pivot to, like, cheesesteaks. So it's fucking meat and cheese and bread. It's not pizza, it's not hamburgers, but it's something familiar. And he did well. So I could see he was adaptable. He was a smart guy. He was a nice guy. Let's get into a fast, casual restaurant together. Didn't work out so well. Second failed business. But I'm opening a grocery store with him, so like I guess it's not that bad. The partnership isn't that bad. Yeah, well, you figure out a way to make it work, right? Yeah. I will say, <laughs> I don't know the financial side of what happened, but uh, the food was not bad. It was good. I, I so And the same problem we have in breweries, though. Like, this show, I make a rule. I do not interview assholes who made shitty beer and ugly packaging. So um, <laughs> it doesn't matter to the business side, right? Like, you can make fantastic beer. And it yeah. doesn't always matter. Unfortunately, <laughs> the stakes are great, but the business maybe wasn't. I, as a consumer, like, I went to Blake's Steaks pretty often. It was yeah. a good place. It was a shit location. Yes. Like, the location was just shitty. Which is counterintuitive because it's on the main drag. It's oh, on a university. One of the big two streets Between in town. Yeah. university, the uh, Texas A&M, and Highway 6, which is kind of like the main highway to get places. 
So you should have expected people, and we were on the correct side for evening traffic, mm. not morning traffic, but the location was turned out to be garbage. Like, it was a flyby. It was one of those flyover yeah. states. It was, well, it was just a little shitty strip mall that didn't really have anything else in it. Yeah. Like, there was one crappy pool hall bar. That place was not crappy. <laughs> I mean, Plus, I used to live behind it. Yeah. Like, I would go there all the time. But he meant like, Divey, which is not bad, right? Plus, they, have, they had free pool for uh, during happy hour. So, like, I would yeah. just, my pool cue was in the office. <laughs> and I would just go, like, take but it But, I mean, out. like, but that's what I'm saying about it being a crappy location, yeah. though, is, like, the only draw for that strip mall really was that bar and your restaurant. Genghis Grill and Golden Corral. Right. <laughs> and if you're trying to run a decent restaurant, you can't just be jam-packed with a whole bunch of other bullshit because people aren't going to notice you. And especially because I wanted to be a very craft beer-centric sandwich shop. It was just the wrong location. It was the absolute wrong location. The first year was okay, and then we struggled for the second year, and then right before COVID. Like, we can blame COVID, that's fine, but it was before COVID that we decided to show. We were shoveling too much money into that business personally. I think Hops and Greens blame COVID. They yeah. close right before it, so yeah. it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Fucking COVID. Hey, get vaccinated, y'all. What happened with New Republic after you left? So now you're on the outside looking in. Right. So uh, I, I have to assume that you you knew the employees more so than, than I did. So you're going to have a yeah. better inside track than me. But they did eventually close. Yeah. But in the interim between when they lost their most important employee and they closed the doors, what happened? <laughs> well, the quality <laughs> went way down. Did it? And the reason for that is because most of the production staff left. I think all of the production staff left. Parker was a lovely, beautiful, bright-eyed, like, 21-year-old. Didn't know anything shit about craft beer, but he was cool. Like, um, he left. Josh, my assistant brewer, who became head brewer, left eventually. Uh, he got a job over at Nashville Brewery called... Jackalope. Jackalope, excuse me. All right. Josh looked for a long time, eventually got a job at Jackalope. The last holdouts were my packaging manager, who was just in it for a paycheck. He was solid. He knew what he was doing. He could follow instructions. He was awesome. His name was John, I think. <laughs> he left eventually, and then Brian, the QA, QC, lab, and seller guy left. It's like they had no production staff who knew what they were doing. Yeah, that's and, hard. When the talent leaves, yeah, and, new guy can figure it out, but he's got a learning curve. So. And yeah. John, John actually left too. He just like fucking ghosted after six months, so he couldn't hack it either. But obviously, you don't know. Why, or you can speculate, but do you know why you left? I have no idea. No. Seems I mean, like a strange idea. Like, it really does. Kick out my co-founder, and then I'm also going to unfound it myself. Perhaps he saw exactly what I did, John. <laughs> and saw how much work it was. To realize he didn't want to do it. <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the limey brick kicked him out? I doubt it. Yeah. No. <laughs> they hired a guy just to, to make beer. Travis, I'm sorry, but you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> He's like, well, like you said, Jeremy, yeah. the quality went way down. Like, dramatically. Yeah. Hmm. Because all the people who knew how to maintain that quality who knew the who knew the SOPs left they're gone well I mean like you were saying earlier though I think a big part of that was you said you had a janky system that you had figured out yeah. so when right. someone else has to come in and be like oh shit like I have to disconnect 20 hoses to move something and like every time I have a brew day I have to do all of this like, yeah and all that institutional knowledge about why we sanitize the counterfeiter chiller before each brew like why why everything we did happened and it's it's sure it's work, but you got to do it. Part of the overall process. Yeah. And how to how to streak a plate? Like you, if you don't know how to do that, you're in trouble. Let's shift gears slightly. You you didn't appreciate leaving. You didn't mm-hmm. want to leave. No. You've even unlike most of us that have on the show, considered going back into it. Cannot um, wait to get back into it. <laughs> you do whatever you want, buddy. I, I will just stand over here and judge you. So when it closed, I have to assume that there was at least some measure of validation that you felt that. 
you know, you didn't want them to fail, but at the same time, like, they kick you out, and then they couldn't right. do it without you. How, how did you feel? When you heard the news that they were closing six, eight months ago, whatever it was, how did you, you feel? Um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> they struggled harder for, for a year. Like, last year, I, for some reason, Nick thinks I'm his friend. He's friendly to me, because I think eventually he figured out that, like, Running all of this shit is hard. I knew what I was doing, and John didn't know what he was doing. Maybe Nick felt bad about how you got treated. You know, you're, there, there, there I mean, might be some truth to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I fully place the blame for the, the collapse of the partnership on John. Collapse of the business, maybe me. I take responsibility for that, for sure. But sort of like a lot of ambivalence, for sure, because I enjoyed working there. I enjoyed having a brewery. I enjoyed like all of the things that came with it. Free beer, free music, all a bunch of cool people. Well, I mean, you were paying yourself in beer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you to my wife to like allow, like to ma- enabling me to like she had a, she had a, a job that paid the bills. So, and in this town, you can do that. You can live on one salary and still make a tenuous living. But. Yeah. What I would say to any prospective breweries out there is really look into Bryan College Station. <laughs> Our cost of living is <laughs> yeah solid, especially coming from Silicon Valley, California, where like, yeah. you couldn't get out of the movie theater for forty bucks for less than forty bucks. I I don't know. I still hate it, but I still feel like, yeah, this was your doom, your demise, because y'all, that was your fault. You made your bed. There were rumors circulating all over the place about closing, and like, because I'm still, most of my family is still invested in the brewery, so mm-hmm. I kind of got, I had kind of had the inside, the early track on what was going on, so when I heard that they were, like, low-key closing, I went back and I said goodbye to all the, the things, peasant beers, went back, said goodbye, and that was kind of the most melancholy part of of that whole situation. Did any of your friends and family get their investment partially repaid even? No. I think they're still in bankruptcy proceedings. They they have not actually sold their stuff. So if somebody wants to change the brew house. Because I want to buy some of the, I want to buy one of those tanks. I want to buy Captain Cameron. (laughs) Just to keep it as a piece Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. (laughs) That little tank was great. Like I want to, I don't know. (laughs) So I'm asking you to speculate and I'm well aware of that. So what do you think was the demise? I mean, clearly if the sales were there, they wouldn't have closed. And so do you think that that was, I'm not entertaining. What do you, why do you think the demise happened? It was 100% quality. They started making shit beer. No distributor would pick them up because they sort of kind of tried that. By that time, their reputation was so bad that they, they were not paying attention to quality. So if you're going to start a brewery, fucking pay attention to quality. Do it. <laughs> that is the thing. And also sell what's profitable. You know, yeah, okay. just go through the list. Anything else you want to contradict that I said? First of all, your beer is not going to sell itself. Pay hey, all the attention you can about online beer reviews. <laughs> the distributor is not going to sell your beer. The bar is not going to sell your beer. You are going to have to sell your beer, but you're also going to have to make good beer. The first thing is to make a, a consistently consistent quality and execute on what you say you're going to do. But so they they failed on all of that. They got they bought a shit ton of Chinese equipment, which some some of that's good, but most of it is garbage. Yeah, you have bad luck with it for yeah. sure. It's hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, mainly miss. We thought we were going to be better than that because Nick had connections in China. But no, the welds were garbage and like they had to have a bunch of retrofits and super stupid. Like They bought the same size brew house that we used to have. That's weird. It's a waste of money. So they wasted a bunch of money. Oh, it was they, a waste of Nick's money at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah, by that time I was out. Well, so uh, based on your experience and obviously selfishly, thankfully your experience is different than mine. If you were writing my book, what would you include that I did not include? I did think about this. Not um, only did you think about it, you wrote down an answer. I did, like, yeah, somewhere. Is it that Kelly guy? He barely fucking write himself out of a box. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell him what should be in the next book. No, you're the, you're the book writer. I don't know if I could do a whole chapter on "Don't Let a Lining Brit Invest in <laughs> but I'll try. I'll see if I can. You should like spend some time in London or something. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I didn't see in your book was investing in your sales staff um, because that was one of our major, major fallings. Is 
not we were selling beer, but we didn't have we didn't support our salespeople. We, our one salesperson, one guy, Jeremy, to sell the beer because we thought maybe we could just like skate by. Definitely have to have this whole push behind behind your sales team. to invest in what what way you mean uh, paying them more or giving them support but yeah you know, having more of them. first of all having more of them because yeah. depending on how big your market is like we need we needed at least one sales rep for this market we need at least like five sales rep for houston maybe i don't know and then give them the money the swag the time to actually sell beer not just like making sales calls like hey you need to because they, ha- they would have to call up each HEB. They would have to go to each HEB and look at the inventory, look at what's in back stock. And each each of those stops takes 30 minutes, and then you got a 20-minute drive between the next one. So you gotta you got to give your sales staff the time to actually promote your beer. So you need a you need a delivery logistics, and you need to sit. So like, we did not give our sales staff enough support. Well, and that was self-distribution just being a challenge for a small group. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different business that you have to create. You have to have the logistics of being a distributor as well. So this is the challenge. So in a sense, I did touch on it in the first book, but this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for the either the second or the third book. I don't know which one it's going to be, but the long story short is that I did build a business model around the concept of hiring that salesperson sales they have to get, and I couldn't find a way to make that profitable. Huh. So my point would be that that person, if you give them 30 grand a year, then you give them 50 cents a mile, and then you give them free t-shirts, hats, and beer, yeah. uh, you're in for 50 roughly with benefits and, and you know, vacation time. At, at least, yeah. So the scalability of what you've got to sell based on the cost of goods sold and the margin that you get, particularly when you go to retail, I couldn't find it. So I am planning on doing the math. We'll see if I do that. But doing the math and figuring out a business plan and where that has to be, I think it's going to be a number that's largely impossible in a market like this. Yeah. Here in downtown Houston, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, you yeah. can do it. I don't know that it's possible in, in even my business. So I did it in my business because I was trying to find a way. I recognized that early on that we weren't getting the push. I was doing all the work and I couldn't do the production and the sales side. And I couldn't find a number where I could get any of that to work without it being part-time and part-time didn't work. And, Right, it's really hard to two hundred fifty thousand people, two hundred six thousand people, um, and then like three hundred thousand students are in town. But but this is a small market. If we had, well, and it's one of the best Dosakis markets in the world. <laughs> is oh, it so, yeah, it's, it's an insane Dosakis really? market. Dosakis outsells every other domestic beer that I have. Huh, that's a so, revelation to me. So it's yeah. interesting. I, I and, and I overcharge for Dos Equis because I just don't like the Dos Equis drinking yeah. crowd. Good job. So they don't I, care. Yeah. <laughs> No, so like I sell seven or eight cases a week of Dos Equis. I sell two cases of Bud Light. It, it is what it is, basically. Yeah. And I've heard recently I started trying to look, listen to more of the macro stuff and like pay attention to like the larger scale yeah. things. Like an actual study of the amount of ethanol consumed by Americans over the past decade has not changed per capita. Okay, yeah. So essentially, yeah. human beings are not drinking more beer. They're drinking the same amount of ethanol in general, whether that's seltzer or whatever. And right. so at some point, there's no growth. Right. And so we keep saying like, oh, if we just do this, we'll grow. We'll take, you're not. Exactly. Kelly, happening. what are you doing this to me? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, partially because you would think you still want to open a brewery. I'm doing my best to convince you not to. For Adrian's sake. Man, she she's like want, a nice woman. She just wants to see me happy. And this is where I'm happy. So like, <laughs> God bless her. You know, like, she's, she's great. Because she loves what she's doing. It's not like she's stuck in a job that she doesn't care about. Like, right. She, she fucking loves teaching. She's so good at it. Go do what you want to do. Be a director of some program somewhere. Great. I can just be house husband and make beer. So, yeah. That's weird that there's so much Dos Equis in this town. I yeah. did not know that. No. We ruined his day. No, the Dos Equis. Technically, you did. Well, I, no. 
I had no idea. Yeah, when I was pricing stuff out at the beginning, I was like, ah, Dos Equis, like whatever. Yeah, I'll charge six bucks a yeah. night, five dollars, and I charge two twenty five for Bud Light at Happy Hour, three twenty five at night. Right. Still sell more Dos Equis. Huh. I wonder what it is about that brand that like got well, people so hooked up. I think at the end of the day, if you really did the math, what it boils down to is that we aren't friends with anyone who drinks Dos Equis, really, for the yeah. most part. Right. And what that means is that up to 250,000 people in this city, most of them aren't your people. Right. It's an argument I've had with some people as I've, I've, I've consulted with a couple of guys. I'm like, you know, what should your branding look like? What's your plan going forward? And everybody starts with, here's what I like. So I'm going to present this to the consumer. Yeah. And the reality is the consumer isn't you in most cases because they don't have the money to start a business. They don't have the interest in doing something passionate. They just want to get to Friday so they can drink a bunch of beer. And the best beer to drink on Friday afternoon if you don't give a fuck is those actions. Right. I mean, yeah, that's why we have our $5 Happy Meal. Lone Star Tall Can and a shot of Wild Turkey 101. Nice. Five bucks. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. Like, I fully we sell a thousand I'm of them sure a month. You, well, especially <laughs> in the college town. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I mean, I acknowledge that I'm out of touch with like the everyday beer drinker. And that's fine. And not that you should be in touch. I think that makes one of the reasons that we're having a conversation where we can be intelligent one another is because we're not those people. But, but that's not to say that the average beer drinker is, is dumb or not intelligent. No, like we are making a niche product. Or I was. We were we were making craft beer specifically. Yes. Craft beer is a niche. Acknowledge that. Craft beer is a niche product. Absolutely. For um, a different demographic, yeah. for sure. Yes. Yeah. Those aren't the people I'm talking about. That's why I was always fine with, I'm going to brew what I want to brew, and if they're going to come to it. And that's always kind of like been the my philosophy, and this is something I picked up from Adrian, my wife, is that make shit that you understand and you like. That way you can project that enthusiasm, and it's authentic and genuine. And the people who are going to pick up on that are going to pick up on that and come. And maybe, uh, like the, the whole profitability question is, is, is where you run into issues, is can you make your passion profitable? And well, the frustrating part is in the brewery down the street is fucking packed out the gills with their stupid ass cream ale they're making right? money but there's nothing wrong with making a cream ale every once in a while I don't know yeah I hate cream ale <laughs> you know Cadigan was supposed to be a cream ale I guess kind of I guess it was a dark blonde based on what that one chick said it was a definitely not a dark blonde <laughs> although there are occasions when like we let quality slip and it was, mm. it was darker than it should have been <laughs> but I mean there's also like to your point about brewing stuff that you're leaving in your own product it makes marketing a lot easier when it's actually something like, yeah, it makes it easier, but uh, I guess the issue I'm saying is that if it doesn't connect with the target market you're looking for, yeah, easier is not the goal, right? right. So unfortunately, we have to, and connect. that's why it's smart to actually have a marketing person if you can, or like an actual graphic designer. Oh, you you're mean like, not not just some college chick that knows how to run Instagram and no one else does? Yeah, <laughs> but you know, sometimes that goes a long way. For the restaurant, we like we hired some people, and like, they, as long as there's some consistency. Yeah, it matters. Post? Yeah. 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 Now, you guys have been very generous with your time, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up with a few questions. Let's not stop. Let's keep going. <laughs> One that I really yeah. want to know. Yeah. Started this as a home brewer. You got closer and planned it as a passionate home brewer. You got excited as a home brewer on a one-barrel system. I got to go to a 20-barrel system. Are you still home brew? <laughs> um, no. No. Um, Are you mad at beer? No, I'm not mad at beer. Um, there is just such a, and this is something you homebrewers are not going to find out until you actually do it yourself. There is such a vast difference between homebrew equipment and pro equipment that I don't know how I was doing it as a homebrewer. Sure, you can make good beer, but like 
it's even more janky than the janky equipment that I had when I was a... And you know what? I haven't been to Homebrewer for almost a decade now, so I don't know what, what the state of the art is. Because for me, it was like sweating your own copper manifold in the bottom of a cooler mash tun and, and a fucking Cajun burner thing. Well, some of that still exists, you know. but they definitely have a few tabletop. They have fancy ones if you actually want to spend the money. Yeah. I still homebrew, oh. but like, my beer sucks. It's, let, let me it's, help you with that. Would you like to start a brewery? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think you can fit some tanks over here. <laughs> you know, so that's not a bad idea. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I kind of miss the creative side of it for sure. And I can't find a goddamn good porter in this town. So, like, I would like to go back to it. It's hard for me to go back to that. Maybe if I bought a grandfather or whatever. There's um, another one I saw recently, too, as a tabletop unit. Yeah. I was like, I might actually do that, but the whole idea of sanitizing equipment, and right. just, I'm like, I'm not doing that. And like, I never thought I would fall in love with a fucking chemical, but <laughs> sodium hydroxide, that stuff gets, yeah, nobody uses so that. so clean. And a homebrew setting, what do we yeah. use, PBW right. or whatever? Like, it's not the same. Oh God, like an oxidized, like really good oxidized caustic, man. Yeah, you just fucking, you put it, you put it in a pump, yeah. you run it in a spray ball, <laughs> Turn you the walk switch. away yeah. for 30 minutes, yeah. you come back it's and done. it glistens. Yeah. For many reasons, that included. I thought about it. I've done. I've even done it once or twice, and it's just not the same. It's not the same. Which is why I kind of want like I've been brewing at the two local breweries here. Yeah. So like I've been guest brewing. Uh, so that scratches the itch, but it only makes it worse. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but what about Jeremy? You can actually answer this one too. Overall, now you're newer to the industry, I guess, on the retail side. But what about overall your pro, your opinion with alcohol in general? And uh, I will preface that by saying that. This industry did not make me an alcoholic. I was probably an alcoholic before, but the, the rampant availability and the almost necessity of drinking my own beer, researching everybody else's beer, I've overdone it. And I've gotten to a place that I don't like beer anymore. And a big part of that, I'll caveat that with, I don't like, I have a very hard time when I t- sample somebody else's beer who's popular or profitable in the market or, or perceptibly profitable in the market. And... It's not made well. It's it, there's residual sugar. It's a lack of fermentation, or it's out of balance in a way that you made an ESB, and all it has is a cardboard bitterness at the end. Like you clearly don't know what the fuck you're doing, but you're selling it to the account that didn't buy my product. I get angry, and I have a problem with that. So there's that. But then there's also um, I, I had to almost detox the first half of this year, and it felt fantastic. I I, just, I wouldn't say I stopped. I did stop drinking for three months, but I had to stop drinking for a while, and then I just limited it back. Um, but it got to a point that it was untenable. How was your relationship to alcohol through your process of owning a brewery? Um, yeah, I'm fairly sure I was an alcoholic in my home brewery day, easily. But <laughs> this is the thing, like owning a brewery for so long, you kind of, we have a relationship with alcohol and it's just made it more, like made it easier to, to drink heavily and know what your limits are and know where you can stop. Whether or not that's good or bad, like I remember <laughs> vividly, Driving home from this place in Waco where we had a beer fest. That was fun. (laughs) And nearly falling asleep at the wheel, crashing this plumbing van. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so like, yeah, it's like, yes, it's a a danger and it's always there. We only hire alcoholics. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, what do you think about that? We actually Um, trained our own. (laughs) Well, I mean, so coming from my perspective, I actually drink less now, legitimately speaking. Like, I drink... More varied things, but my old career in oil and gas, like, I mean, I was working so damn much that I was a 
true functioning alcoholic and like drinking myself blackout every night. Like every night or, or like, weekend? No, every fucking night. Like, really? It was bad. Now that like I'm just not as stressed at my job, like because it's fun, <laughs> right? It's not the thing that I hate. It's fun. Like I have a few beers and then I go home. Yeah, it's just. I don't know. But I'm also very new into this, right? Like, this is a whole new thing. Yeah. It's not nearly as much money as I was making when I was in oil and gas. But <laughs> that's why you're not drinking it much. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe that's right. Well, but I mean, like, I have access to so much more booze, yeah. right? Wholesale like, prices are great for me. <laughs> no, all the guest beers in my brewery um, were all beers that I liked. And a big part of that, that started it during COVID. And they were all beers I wanted as road beers. And so I would <laughs> on the way home, I'd grab one, drink it on the way home. Yeah. I think not I'm surprised smart. that. I surprised the shit out of the Benny Keith rep when I would just buy cases and cases of old speckled hen, which is <laughs> which is a, a goddamn like pub ale British bitter that nobody else in this town five hundred milliliter bottle. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love that beer so much. Okay, but yeah, like we're all kind of like I don't get black like out. I, drunk. I do still drink too much. Yeah. Like, I will say that, but I think I drink the right amount. It's less than I was when I was in oil and gas because I yeah. did a lot of. That makes sense. <laughs> So that's the secret. Come from oil and gas to the brewing industry. Yeah. Those, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I know you're going to love this question. Yeah. Who's more of an asshole, me or you, Dean? It's obviously you. Obviously. <laughs> Clearly. There's, there's not even like, no. you could take a breath at least. And I didn't have people to think about these. this too much now. <laughs> why, why do you want me to just tell I don't know. I just thought it was. You know, it's funny. I, I saw on Reddit that you had sold your brewery. And like the hate you got on Reddit <laughs> for <laughs> that announcement. Get online. Yeah. I, I used to go Jody at Witchcraft and I were uh, texting back and forth about it. And I go, the bigger question, he asked me something. I go, the bigger question is like, who's going to take over as the most hated craft brewer right. in Texas? Like, right. I don't know. Who? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But, but like, it could have been the guy from Brash. He's like kind of gotten out of the scene a little bit. And he, he was never like front and center yeah. uh, in Brash. Like Brash yeah. has that attitude, but there's no like one person to it, direct that. It wasn't Ben doing yeah, exactly. it. Yeah. yeah right. exactly. Or maybe it was, but he didn't put his name on it. Right. Because yeah. he was running petrol state. Anyway. But yeah, like. Definitely, yeah. yeah, definitely. Just by judging by the online, by those beer reviews. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah, the hatred for me is real, but it is what it is. I don't really care. It's, it's not people that I connect with intellectually. So yeah. at that point, I guess to your point, they are not my contemporaries that hate me. Right. So no one that I respect has talked <laughs> shit about me. Yeah, so you're like that Lenny Bridge. So yeah. So at <laughs> yeah. some point, like if somebody I respect says something, I'm like, oh, hold on a second. What did I do or what did I say? Yeah. But if you're just a a douchebag asshole who goes on Austin Let's Talk Crap Beer and shits on everything, right. and you also <laughs> shit on me, I, you have no credibility in my opinion, so I don't really care. The thing that has like warmed my heart about this whole fucking saga is all of the support that I've gotten from the people who are fans of New Republic. Yeah. Um, it's like anywhere I go, people say, hey, Dean, he's a nice guy. Why, why did the brew stop? So like, thank you all for everybody out there for like, just being cool about me closing the brewery. You know what I got a lot? As I asked, uh, I didn't actually ask around. I mostly just mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm interviewing Dean and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And uh, almost across the board, it was like, oh, that guy got fucked. <laughs> like, that's, I, everyone's, and of course, they don't know the whole story any more than I did either, yeah. right? But to me, like, again, I don't interview assholes who made shitty beer and ugly packaging. And so if everyone's like, he got what he deserved, that guy's yeah. a dick, I'd be like, well, there's no story there. I'm not interested in that, but. Y'all ain't wrong. Thank you, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks, this is why I love that, the industry, because if, if you're not an asshole, or even if you're an asshole, you can still, I don't know, have a good time. Well, as long as you're connected people right. at the end of the day. But, uh, I still like fucking hanging out with you. This has been awesome. Yeah, no, I've really had fun. Summarize it for me. What uh, What is the moral of the New Republic story? Not that you have to leave with one sentence, but like, what is like, what do you, what do they need to know? What's what's the moral? I'm literally on the edge of my seat. No, no, <laughs> maybe, maybe you're going to write it down, and I, he wants to make sure he said it the way you wrote it. It's no, good. I, I, 
I looked at that question and I skipped it. Um, the moral of the New Republic story is when you get into a partnership, if you get into a partnership, then like shit's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know. Just, fuck, I don't know. There is no, I can't give you a parable of what we could have done different or better. I know what I could have done different or better, maybe. And that's, I don't even know. Uh, because well, if you knew, you'd have another brewery. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> it's just all of it. It's just do all of it better. <laughs> you know, you have to have a very clear understanding of what you're going to be what you're doing. The quality will come. And I don't know how common this is anymore in the industry coming from in 2010, you could be, be a home brewer and become a brewer and still do okay and still like have a good time and, and make decent beer. I don't know. People call me up. Tell me, you know, what's, what's going on? Why is this industry so weird right now? Or am I just out of touch? It's so different being a home brewer. I kind of envy these people who never were home brewing. We just went to brewing school because that's the thing you do in Germany and learn how to great loggers and then have that basic knowledge of how to make quality beer because then it's like it's a no-brainer that aspect of it is under control it's we, almost like you're satisfied with mediocre beer if you're a homebrewer yeah kind you've of kind drank of drank it with your buddies situationally and it was fun it was an event in, its, in of itself and of course all your buddies are going to tell you like you're great you should sell your beer like i would buy it and also thank you christy for like encouraging me to start a brewery i love you you're my first customer you're still a great customer of zyman so like please thank like all of the people who, who supported me like rolla and that place on in downtown that's not there anymore and that other place in college station that's not anymore like all those people who like sort of encouraged said hey this is a cool thing you're gonna get a lot of that you're gonna hear people say yes you should start a brewery you make great beer and you don't make great beer you make fine beer you make drinkable beer it's not the same, and it's not a, the scale is completely different. Coming from a, this is my perspective. Coming from a homebrew background to a production brewery standpoint, where everything is just more, and like you have to buy a fucking truckload of pan, cans. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, let me talk about my canning line. Now, there's so many other things that, we wanna, that I would love to talk about because um, it's awesome. You can buy cheap stuff, and you can start up small. This <laughs> fucking <laughs> 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 like we bought this. Yeah, uh, I gotta, I gotta say this because, like, because you didn't ask me about mobile canning. Because fuck mobile canning. Well, because it ended up being like a two and a half hour interview, <laughs> right. and uh, I didn't want to. There's some editing. Yeah, <laughs> like the canning line that we bought. We bought Southern Stars old two head manual single seamer, and <laughs> I did know that, but I can't now. I mean, you said it in the thing. Uh, I don't think you did, but I remember knowing that. Yeah, because I went there for the NBAA thing. I remember looking at their. Oh canning yeah. Thing. And that's the one you bought. Like, yeah. yeah, it's cool. It's like, yeah, and then you got to figure out how a canning line works. And it's not intuitive. No, at it's all. not. No, there's so many other like aspects of making beer, producing beer for sale. Then, then there's the homebrew. The moral of the story is: start small, rely on distributors to sell your beer. Uh, just you know, brew whatever you want to do. It's fine. The people will buy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I appreciate you making it this long and this far with us. Clearly, Dean is drunk. I'm going to cut him off. I really appreciate you sharing the story. I, I feel, honestly, based on what we talked about thus far, that we could do an entire another uh, episode together. Hit me up for and I'm not taking that yeah. off the table. Yeah, we no, might. Cool, cool. And if we do, I think we should incorporate uh, You're always welcome back. Yeah. yeah no, I, I appreciate the hospitality. We're Your here hanging out. You run around hanging out with us. At one of the most prestigious craft beer bars in Brian College Station, the 101. We definitely one with the best looking guys in it right now. So, uh, <laughs> right now, yeah. It's been, it's been fantastic. And I thank you guys for uh, everything today. Uh, why don't we wrap up and go grab some lunch? Sure. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So you're not getting out of here without at least a thanks from me for sticking around. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my others. I feel confident that my guests and I have something very special to share with you. Also, remember that the book that inspired this podcast is now available on Amazon in Kindle and good old-fashioned paperback. I can't encourage you enough to pick up a copy, but I am happy to try. If you're feeling generous, you can support the podcast in a couple of ways. Please give your time, attention, and money to the sponsors of the show. And you can also sponsor the show directly with a link in the show notes. Positive reviews are also a great way to digitally high-five my guests and I. And while I may be the raucous host, these people have bared their souls for you, and I can't thank them enough for their honesty and desire to selflessly help improve your career. I want you to know that you are meant for more than mediocrity, and that no one ever achieves greatness without a stumble or two. But most importantly, always remember, mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media. Media.